0: What's going on? Asymmetry, what's up everybody? We were lucky enough to get Dennis Voitia back in the house. His first podcast had a massive ripple effect. And with the rise of interest in deciduous knowledge that's kind of happening at this point in time, we wanted to have Dennis back. He filmed some feature content for Mariah Live members on how to handle Japanese maples in the spring, pinching, pruning... All kinds of really interesting information. I learned a ton from him today. But this podcast, oh my gosh. The first one, tough to beat. I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but I knew that Dennis had more. And he kind of just emptied the clip on deciduous information, clarified techniques in the first podcast, expanded, organized Answered a lot of questions, had some beautiful, comprehensive gems of knowledge in this, and came up with idea after idea, his experiments over the course of his life as a deciduous bonsai practitioner and how he continues to push the envelope, explore. I mean, I felt like my, I have not talked with somebody in a long time where I've walked away feeling this inspired and filled with creative ideas about how how bonsai can be pursued. This is a real interesting one, and it's long, but there are gems all the way to the last minute of this podcast that you are going to want to hear in terms of deciduous bonsai cultivation, handling, and creative ideas. Uh, Dennis Voitia just blew my mind tonight. Enjoy, and we'll catch you on the other side. Dennis, how's your world? Good. I'm yeah? retired, you know? Yeah. Well, cool. But you're awfully busy for being retired. You're busy.
1: Yeah. You're a busy guy. Not that busy. No. Well, I fill up the t- the day's worth of things. Yeah. Um, but and it's starting to be transplanting season. Yeah. So the next couple of weeks are going to be full blast. It's a couple of sixty degree days this week, and yes, sir. Everything will start popping. So.
0: So you're talking uh, for bone size specifically. Yeah. Is there anything that happens at this time of the year in the vineyards?
1: Done. Everything's pruned, tied down. Waiting for springtime.
0: When do you prune? When do you prune the uh, grapevines?
1: Mid-January to... It just finished a week or so ago.
0: Okay. And uh, and pruning grapevines in the middle of January, regardless of how cold it gets?
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Okay. Because uh, what we're we're doing is we're pruning off the, um, the extra canes from last year. Right. And so we're taking two of the... Canes and then just tying them down to a T. Uh huh. So there's some bending going on, but it's usually not enough to snap anything and and so those canes are pretty much intact. They don't seem to get harmed by um, by the cold weather.
0: Do you prune your grape bonsai in January as well?
1: Mm, no.
0: Just because you're not like doing bonsai at that yeah, time, you're, yeah. So w- when would you prune your grape bonsai then?
1: Um after I get done with the maple <laughs> transplanting. Okay. It's so just because, sometime in the
0: spring before they push. Oh, yeah. They're, essentially. But they're
1: later than a lot of other trees. Okay. So uh, they're one of the later ones I could do. Right. And so that and often princess persimmon and a couple other things that come later. Right. Those wait until time becomes available then.
0: And do you prune your... I asked you this last time, but I'm still trying to wrap my mind around mm. it. Do you prune your grape bonsai the same way you prune the grapes in the vineyard?
1: Um, not exactly, I guess. Because in the vineyard... Yeah, in the vineyard, we take last year's candelabra, basically. Cut off everything except two, two strong canes. Uh-huh. Uh, so... In a way the pruning that we do in the vineyard is similar to what we do for bonsai pruning. Okay. Next year we take two other canes, tie them down and do some pruning so
0: So you expand the ramification on grapes even in the vineyard. You go from 2 to 4 or are you saying you're only no, always having just 2?
1: You're only the way that most of the people grow it here in Oregon, you're only having just 2 canes.
0: Okay. So then in bonsai, do you try to ramify your grapes? Yeah. And how do you go about that then?
1: It's the same idea as most deciduous uh-huh. uh, pruning.
0: Cutting back to two. Do you cut through yeah. the growing season as well? Then,
1: yes. If it, yeah, because the the grapes will often extend quite a long way. Uh huh. So if if I let them, I'd get ten nodes three feet long. Right. So rather than that, what I want is, if if I see the grape extending beyond five nodes and it doesn't have flowers on it, right? then I'll prune that back to one or two nodes and essentially restart that branch.
0: Gotcha. And if you prune back one to two nodes, would it ramify? Oh yeah. Would both push? Yeah. Wow, interesting, huh. Yeah, G- grapes are
1: very strong growers and so there's a lot of energy flowing through them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Ever since uh, ever since you were on the podcast last time, the deciduous boom has occurred. Everybody boom. was like, "Wow, Dennis, deciduous!" And the, everybody's been like, "When's he coming back on?" I was like, "I don't know. Let's see if we can get him out here."
1: People actually like deciduous now, huh?
0: I I, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a change that's happening because uh, because there is more awareness of higher level deciduous. I think now maybe there's some exposure to it. There's some accessibility to it. There's, But I think also over the past 10 years, like we had the big Yamadori influx, right? Yeah. And so you have all of these junipers that, that people maybe have never had the ability, knowledge, accessibility to work with. You saw You saw that kind of happen. And it's like 10 years later, sort of that what seemed like a major trend towards the collected tree has started to soften to the other aspects of bonsai now coming coming back or maybe re- recognizing there's potential that hadn't been tapped into is yeah. is what i'm thinking about cuz deciduous mm. i mean they take a lot of time they take a longer amount of time but they also just take that consistency that yeah. maybe conifers you can more spontaneously work with deciduous it's just sort of this consistency and there's a real joy to that i think
1: yeah I, I find it very satisfying, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but af- after your podcast last time, it was like...
2: Yeah. <laughs> the I think the you, response was so heavy. I think you, I think you so kicked happy. it off, yeah.
1: Yeah, there was some huge well, feedback from that. So, but I also tell people what I'm doing is nothing really extraordinary. I'm doing simple things, simple techniques, and just applying them consistently mm-hmm. over an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. That's what growing deciduous bonsai basically is all about. Mm-hmm. You don't let things get away from you and ruin the shape or ruin branches as a result of it uh, or um, cause other branches to die back because only a couple of sh- shoots are getting all the energy. Yeah. So you apply it consistently both throughout the season and season to season and you build on the ramification that you built before. Mm-hmm. You make good choices early so you don't have to keep cutting stuff away. Yeah. Well,
0: one thing I really <clears throat> wanted to ask you about that uh, that I've encountered a lot, um, specifically with Japanese Maple, which you shot a piece of feature content for us today, which was yep. outstanding. I can't wait for people to see it. And it's, it's hilarious because... Um, historically Japanese maple have always bled for me in the spring and you worked on Japanese maple and yours did not bleed and I've just I, I simply have never seen that before
1: yeah I don't have a good explanation except maybe it's still a little bit early um, but on the, the big maple you could see a lot of roots kind of yeah. pushing out from underneath the moss so there's activity there yeah but Maybe maybe because it's so cold over here where, where you are that uh, and it's a little bit colder day that things have not bled much,
0: I mean, and would you work on them even if they did bleed in yeah. the spring? Yeah. yeah, never you've never really
1: I've never had any problem with that. interesting, yeah. I mean, it, in a, in a sense, it's like having a small wound mm-hmm. and your body knows how to close it up, and so does a tree know how knows how to close up the yeah, any small wound on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I mean there's a long standing debate in Japan about it. You know, just in terms of does does it cause weakening, does it cause if issue Mr. Kimura didn't believe it it did, other people believe it did. You know, it's oh it's always interesting to see high level Japanese maples and I was actually in New York and uh, working on with a, a student there and and he said yeah japanese maples is not an issue in the spring to prune them yeah um, but it, but it has historically been this great debate and it was interesting to see the quality of your maples down there for being true acer palmatum i've never seen finer branches on yeah. a on a true acer palmatum i mean it's it's phenomenal the response and the results that you get and I was going to ask you, how do you control the strength? Because some Acer palmatum in the apex specifically, as you're building a more and more refined tree, it's hard to get it to calm down. Do you, have you had that experience? And if so, how did you combat it? Or is your methodology not creating that kind of vigor? Or
1: yeah, Part of it is I'm not creating that kind of vigor. So by having a lot of twigs, you help to balance that energy across the tree. Mm-hmm. And so you don't end up with, some a few really strong twigs if you do then you cut those back harder to to smaller side branches right and thereby not exactly weakening it but lessening the strength of that shoot yeah and getting the other ones to kind of catch up to it so um over time it becomes less of a problem
0: we had andrew robson in here and he was um he just finished studying with with michael and uh, and is obviously very deciduous minded, and he was, and we had talked about this because it was a discussion that Fuji, Fuji Cowan, my senpai, when he was here in December, also brought up, was was just the aspect of genetics, and characteristics. Do you find that um, you you try to find good genetics, or have you found that you can manage the strength on almost any Acer palmatum? Um,
1: I can manage the strength. On any regular green Japanese maple, mm-hmm. Acer palmatum, the fancy leaf ones are a little bit tougher. They tend to have, they tend to throw out longer shoots, and so it just takes it takes longer to corral them, yeah. or not not to beat them into submission, but to but to uh, kind of insist that they mellow out a little bit and right. and, and spread that energy across more tips. Hmm. But I think basically if you get it, if you have enough twigs, part of the problem, most of the problem disappears just because that energy is divided across so many growing points.
0: How often do you typically repot your refined deciduous? Every two years? Almost
1: everything two years, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Because now the pots are almost completely filled with fine roots. And unless I do a really significant repotting where I take out a lot of the old soil, um, it'll fill up what I do take out within two years.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you're you're using very, you're using very, I would say, appropriately sized containers. I mean, the containers are of a size that they're constricting the rate of growth in your highly yeah. refined trees. But that dilution, that dilution of the energy across that finer root mass and that finer twig mass makes so much sense to me. It, it's the journey between getting to that fine twig mass and how do you calm down those most vigorous pieces? Because you can literally watch on a lot of Japanese maples. The lower branches are always gonna be slightly weaker and you're kind of working to keep them healthy and in the game of the shape and aesthetic of the tree. Middle branches, you can start to develop some really beautiful finer ramification and and then the apex is is so strong and getting that apical strength pushed into the lower branches or distributed so the lower branches are strong and the apex is refinable i'm still I'm still uh, mystified <laughs> by this,
1: you could you could see that I've accomplished that in in the big Japanese maple yeah,
0: it's it's crazy it's, it's beautiful. It's, they all look the same yeah. in terms of strength, density, right. twigginess, et cetera
1: i mean there's small differences among the twigs, but there's nothing that's getting ready to runners just shoot out. Mm-hmm. It's all pretty much balanced with some just smaller, smaller differences. Yeah. And and a lot of those I snipped off. I And as part of the webcast or whatever. That, yeah, yeah, the that, feature content. Yeah, yeah, we did. I yeah. made, the, made the comments about that's why I was pruning certain ones back, just because they were a little bit stronger. And at this point, it's an easy decision to make to cut it back mm-hmm. and go to side branches. Mm-hmm.
0: And every every year you're having to come back to those refined trees, prior to them pushing and reset that ramification. Because every year you're going to get the accumulation of things you do want, and things you don't want. Is that what I'm understanding?
1: Yes. Although um, there were surprisingly few cuts I had to make on on the Japanese maple there, the the main one. Uh, part of it was because it was because I I cut the the leaf out at the right time last year, or the, the budding and remove the center of the buds while they were still very small. Mm-hmm. So therefore, most of the extension that I got was in that three eighths to half inch range that I'm looking for.
0: So if you, as they're pushing leaves, if you get that central bud out really early on, you do yes. find it makes that big of a difference? Oh, it's huge. Really? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, you could see, so, to do that, what you really need to do is is catch it before the bud opens out. Uh-huh. So, at that point, the bud is is growing, and um, it's sort of plumping, and it's ready to pop. You can kind of touch the tip of it, and the two leaves will pop open, uh-huh. and then you pull out the, the centerpiece. At that time, the extension is probably about a quarter of an inch. Wow. And... When you take out the center, it'll increase a little bit. So it might go to three-eighths of an inch or an extra sixteenth or an an eighth of an inch Mm -hmm. while it realizes that it's not going to grow anymore. Sure. But that's all you get. And that's just perfect for the outside of a Japanese maple tree. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And when you do that and you stop that elongation, does it stimulate growth on the interior of the plant, or is this something that it'll produce those two leaves, and then it really just kind of hangs out like that the rest of the year?
1: Uh, It depends a lot on on the trees that are really old. You may not get any, you might not get a second, you won't get a consistent second flush of growth. Mm -hmm. You'll get Some occasional flushes, a second flush of growth, and it might help to push some buds that are more dormant below it. Gotcha. And get something to pop out. Uh, For a younger tree, you'd almost certainly get a second flush of growth, and you'd have to do the same thing with that too.
0: You'd have to pinch it again. Yeah. Perfect. I'm so glad you said that. I've never had, I've never heard anybody actually talk about it. If you do get that second flush, the fact that you do need to be pinching yeah. again—I mean, it makes sense, though. Why, uh, if, you, yeah, it's, if it's what gave you idea. the shorter internode on the first one, you'd be pinching the second one. So, the older trees, you might not get that second flush. Do you utilize partial defoliation or full defoliation on your Japanese maples over the course of the year?
1: Um, I don't do a full defoliation anymore. I will, I will do a partial defoliation if it, if it's going to a show, mm-hmm. um, just to kind of thin out the, the foliage a little bit to be able to see into the trunk line a little bit better. Yeah. If there's a particular particularly weak part of the uh, uh, branches that I want to get stronger, then I may pull some leaves uh, from above it so that it gets a little bit more sunshine there too.
0: And so you might do that if it's going to show you don't fully defoliate. Do you ever partially defoliate? Uh, well, let me ask you this how do you partially defoliate? Because I know some people on a Japanese maple will cut all of the tips off of the leaf, so you just yeah. have the palm portion of it. I just how, take one of the two leaves off. One of the two leaves at, at yeah. each uh, inner node. Yeah. And how are you fertilizing through this whole process to, to get what you want? What does your fertilization look like? What do you use? How often do you do it?
1: Uh, I wait until the leaves come out and harden off Uh, If I fertilize before that, then I'll get larger leaves, Mm -hmm. all right? So basically, I wanted to use up most of last year's energy, expend that, and then when the leaves have hardened off, um, I'll give it— I typically use the Rose Society fertilizer because it's a relatively mild fertilizer. So I'll use that, and um, maybe a, a month later, add do it again. Uh-huh. Add a second batch to okay. it.
0: Okay. Light 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 amounts, moderate, heavy. How do you go about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> a,
1: a small handful. You know, or yeah. it, it goes into a tea bag, right? Yeah. So we put it into a tea bag. So on a on a large pot there might be six tea bags mm-hmm. on and on a regular one, three or four sure. tea bags, yeah. something like that.
0: Are there other deciduous species that you're pinching, like you're pinching maples?
1: Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, the only thing that kind of comes close, um, but I I don't have enough uh, experience with it, is with something like uh, a beech, mm. where you, yeah. you pull the tip of the beech while it's still kind of in the sheath. Right. And that keeps the nodes very small. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also do... Uh, Clip and grow with beech too, let them extend, cut them back to one or two small, short nodes.
0: What would be, in your mind, the merit of one versus the other?
1: I think you probably get smaller leaves if you you pinch it while it's still in the sheath and if you let it extend.
0: Right. So you might almost be talking about that as sort of that final refinement piece, maybe uh, just to sort of continue that very minimal, incremental right establishment yeah, ramification, minimal amount of branch mass etc
1: yeah if you let the um, the beech shoot extend it'll get pretty thick cuz cuz beech shoots at the top of the tree are very strong
0: very strong yeah reminds me almost of a japanese maple that isn't quite tamed yet or yeah. uh, mellowed
1: out yeah they can they can they can throw off a lot of strong shoots if if there's not enough twigs around to, to balance it.
0: So when you look at just the deciduous practice or at least your workload over the course of the year, spring is a monster because you've got <laughs> repotting as well as pinching of your Japanese maples. Yes. Are so you in pruning of most of your trees before they flush, or how's yeah, that but work?
1: I, I do that probably through the winter as well. Do you? Okay. Yeah. There's there's some that I'll wait for later in the spring, but a lot of it can be done over the course of the winter.
0: And you don't find any, any, uh, issue with that? No. Do you do any pruning when they leaf drop in the fall?
1: Um, some. So like for, for if there are really strong branches that need to be removed, mm-hmm. I'll remove them in the fall gotcha. typically. Mm-hmm. And that again, gives time to do some for the tree to do its own little balancing and, and push some of the smaller shoots.
0: Right. Interesting and you find that those smaller shoots accumulate strength over the winter time then?
1: Yeah, they seem to to me, but I can't prove that necessarily.
0: I, I've noticed that as well, honestly, and, and uh and I've I've done some, you know, I've done fall pruning on my tamarisk, I've done spring pruning on my tamarisk and and um and both seem to be very favorable. Uh I've I've tried the same thing on beech, I've tried similar things on maples, et cetera. And it is interesting to see the different nuances of the two. But I do find that over the course of the wintertime, if you prune back to weaker buds or, or you're pruning back to smaller buds in the fall, that they seem to accumulate more energy over the winter.
1: Yeah. I mean it kind of makes sense because you're removing the terminal bud mm-hmm. and so the oxens are no longer suppressing those side buds. Right. So they'll at least get some extra energy. Yep. So they w- they're they not as likely to die back from being suppressed by those stronger shoots over the wintertime. time. hmm So it kind of makes sense to me, and I suspect that it's true. It seems to be true, but, you know, nothing I could really prove.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and when you think about it, too, like um, when they're regaining that, that, uh, you know, all of that, Those components that create the chlorophyll and that change of pigmentation and reabsorption of all of that, that that reallocation and balancing across all the cellular level of the tree seems to take several weeks over the course of that the fall season, which Mm -hmm. which has always sort of been the justification for fall pruning. I think, especially on Japanese maple, that that people who do subscribe to the bleeding being a problem in the spring tend to lean on the fall for that. Right. But the other thing that's interesting, I read an article. Uh, a couple months ago about uh, aspen trees continuing Mm. to photosynthesize through their bark during the winter.
1: Yeah, I I think other trees do that as well. Yeah. Just to a smaller extent.
0: Yeah. And and, uh, is this something that you've known for a while?
1: I guess I've known about um, the trees that I have go in kind of winter storage in the garage, so they don't get a whole lot of light Mm -hmm. through the winter, other than me going out there every day, turning the light on and staring at my trees. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a full spectrum light. So maybe they do get extra for photosynthesis. <laughs> as well, I I do like the winter time because you know that's the time when you can see. To me, you see deciduous trees at their best.
0: Yeah. 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 It's always such a bummer though, because once a once a deciduous tree gets to that level of refinement, it seems like they're more susceptible to winter conditions than any other time,
1: yeah, I don't take chances anymore,
0: yeah, have you been bit?
1: yes, uh when I first moved out from California uh, I sold a number of trees off, but I kind of took the three best of the of each of the different species that mm. I was growing, some cases more than three. And I had three great Chinese quints, and they were out on the bench right next to each other. I wired, I brought them in into the house to wire, and then put them back out. Uh, then there was a snowstorm uh, one day, one night, and uh, I got out, and you know the three were in getting, getting right next to each other on the bench. They didn't seem to be differently affected, but one of the trees never woke up in springtime. Oh, interesting. And, uh, so maybe it was in the house longer while I was wiring it. I don't know. But mm-hmm. at this point, after they taste the uh, the first freezing temperature, they go into the garage and stay there yeah. Till, till I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. Although at this time, things are starting to push, then they have to come back outside or very shortly they have to come back outside because if i keep them in the garage when they're when the buds are plumping then that will cause the shoots to be longer
0: yeah and the leaves to be bigger yeah yeah that's a big problem with the greenhouse too i mean uh i'd say to a lesser degree in the greenhouse compared to probably in your in your cold facility but uh but still you don't get the same quality light as just full full spectrum sunlight uh, I mean, the reduction of light intensity inside of a greenhouse is, is pretty significant. That's a huge aspect of the glazing material mm-hmm. uh, choices and whatnot. Have you ever thought about getting a greenhouse? Yes. Yeah?
1: Um, there may be one in my future, yes. Ah, nice. Yeah, nice. Well, because right now I I create a temporary greenhouse. So I close in underneath the deck that we have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a full height space. So that's not an issue of scrunching down, but but it's... It's only open on two sides, so it it doesn't – and I I, uh, put a tarp on the top of it so that I don't get deluged with rain. And um, so it cuts a lot of the light out, Mm -hmm. and it'd be nicer to have something that's easier to move around in and easier to use.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah clearly clearly I'm drawn to <laughs> to greenhouses.
1: <laughs> I saw saw another big one going in over there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No that is, So the the original greenhouse has just been it's been fantastic. Um I mean I couldn't imagine having built bonsai mirrori without a greenhouse. I'm going to be I'm going to be in the greenhouse all night tonight trying yeah. to get all the deciduous repotted before I go to Europe. But um yeah, it's, it's such, a, such a utensil to expand your workspace, yeah. to expand your capacity to care, extend seasons, prote- protection is as big as any. I mean, even um, this greenhouse is twice the size as the original one just yeah. to have space to get trees out of the rain. Yeah. Because I do, particularly with the collected junipers that haven't been fully transitioned out of their field soil, the rain has a significant impact on them. Uh, over, the, over over the extended number of years in a container, so uh, that that was really a big part of it. But um, yeah, I love greenhouses. I like I get into the whole airflow and heat uh-huh. efficiency. I, I can I can really geek out on a green greenhouse. I can go hard. Yeah, and the heat bed heat beds now as That's uh, been a
2: problem. It's been a work, huh?
0: I mean fine tuning. Yeah, fine tuning, but. Heat beds originally coming back from Japan, I mean, Mr. Kramer never used a heat bed, but he had this um, interior space inside of his greenhouse. And basically what he did is he closed around the heater of the greenhouse, a smaller condensed Mm. um, plastic enclosed space. And he used to, the heater would flow through there. It had free air exchange just via some like plastic flaps. But that space would heat up abnormally hot because obviously it's at the heat source and it's closed in to some degree. Um, And I figure that he was utilizing that much in the same way that I think we've utilized bottom heat uh, to perpetuate or stimulate root growth. Um, he just didn't have the difference of the air temperature to the root zone temperature, which is a major aspect. I, heat beds in general have changed the game for us. I mean, that's a that's a uh, a monster. It doesn't seem as applicable to the deciduous model, though.
1: Yeah, I've there's never. There's really
0: no ne- necessity for it.
1: Yeah, I've never used heat beds, and mm-hmm. trees have done okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, I very rarely would put a deciduous tree on a heat bed, just because I. I I honestly don't want it to grow <laughs> roots that fast,
1: right? <laughs> right. It's it's okay that it takes time and has a little rest in the totally
0: time okay, too. totally okay. So do you do you handle all of your deciduous trees in terms of fertilization in a very similar fashion? Then,
1: um, yes, I think so. I Just kind
0: think. of a I, slow, methodical yeah. uh, after the first flush is hardened.
1: Yes, almost everything or everything I think uh, waits until after the first flush is hard.
0: Mm. Do you, have you ever, or is there ever a reason in deciduous cultivation where you would more aggressively feed?
1: Um, for younger trees, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, not for the re- refined ones though. Because uh, at that point, again, I don't, I don't, need or expect much from the tree. All they have to do is grow a little bit. Because if they're putting on, you know, if they're putting on a quarter inch a year, in four years, they're two inches wider. Mm -hmm. Another inch taller on top. And so sooner or later, they're going to outgrow the shape that I am really want. If if they grow an inch a year, then I end up having to reshape them a lot quicker.
4: Yeah.
0: Do you find yourself now... Reaching, I mean, so many of your trees are in refinement as deciduous trees. Do you find that you have to e- ever let them grow freely to regain strength, or let them recharge, or or is that not something as they progressively get older? Because I've I've always thought about bonsai almost as dog years in a <laughs> container, right? Like uh, you know, a ten year old dog is how old lime?
2: Uh, uh, Seventy. 70.
0: 70. Yeah. 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 I mean, like container years are, are absolutely far more intense for a tree, it seems, than, than out of the container years. And so over the course of time with this very, uh, minimized growth habit for your deciduous, do they start to reach a point of, of uh, expiration or do you ever have to turn them to sort of to pasture, to graze, if you will?
1: Um, Yes, you sometimes have to do that. It's one of those things you have to be careful with again, where you can't let the growth be unrestricted because you're just as likely to kill off weak weak shoots, weak branches by doing that. So you, there are times when you let them grow longer, um, but, but not excessively so. Mm-hmm. So as part of the pruning that I did today, I had one example of that where... Last year, I let uh, a lot of the branches go to maybe a foot long, so maybe 10 to 12 nodes rather than the normal four or five nodes that I would let them do. And that was to help build the overall strength of the tree. Mm-hmm. And this year, I'll probably put it into a larger pot as well to give it more root space and and uh, have that help build the strength of the tree as well.
0: Which tree was this?
1: Um, it's a um, Japanese maple that has short, small nodes. It's almost...
0: Like a shishigashira kind of a thing?
1: Well, this one, this is a, a kind of dwarf, but it was found, it was, it was the one dwarf-ish uh, Japanese maple in a nursery that had... I don't know, maybe 400 Japanese maples. Right. And I looked at every one and that one said, hmm, there's something different yeah, about that That's interesting. So I took that one home. <laughs> so but, this is
0: the one that's downstairs on the floor against the door. Because I just caught yeah. it out of the corner of my eye and I was like,
1: oh, what is that? Yeah.
0: Really interesting, really well developed.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm experimenting with a little bit of different style with that one. Uh, it's a style that I see in a lot of Japanese maples grown in, in gardens where there's a lot of trunks coming out from near the base. Mm-hmm. So rather than kind of a single line, this one has 10 lines to it growing up into a, almost a flame shape or um, more rounded crown than, right. than I often do.
0: Right. How many, how many varieties of Japanese maples do you have and do you choose to work with?
1: Um, most of them are regular green Japanese maples. Uh, I like uh, Arakawa, the pine bark maple. Mm-hmm. there's uh, most of the dissectums are cut leaf maples, have leaves and shoots that are too coarse, but there is one called seryu, s e i r y u um, and i and that was the one downstairs that I had that had the really light green leaves. Okay. Tiny tiny little leaves. So
0: Is this the one you pinched on the yes. on the future content
1: yes. today?
4: Cool. Cool.
1: Yeah, so it's a very delicate and small-leaved kind of more refined um, uh, lace leaf maple than most of them are. Huh.
0: And you go so, you go find some of this stuff at specialty nurseries and just are you always keeping your eye out for interesting yeah. characteristics?
1: Yeah, and also I, when I'm walking around neighborhoods, I look to see what kind of maples are there and and where I can come back and get seeds from them. Mm. So, I think that the one cedar that I have uh, is probably a seedling from uh, seed I collected and. And seryu only comes true about maybe 5% of the time right, from seed. Right. So I have a lot of forest of, of <laughs> green Japanese <laughs> maples waiting for attention this year.
4: <laughs> right, right. Uh,
1: but then an, another one is uh, sangokaku, uh-huh. the coral bark maple. And I found a tree, I don't know if it's true of all of them, but I found a tree where more than 95% came true, or it looks like they came true. And with with some very small nodes to them that I hadn't noticed before on other uh, sangokaku. So that was quite a find. So there's, a, there's also a forest of sangokaku waiting for it, me too.
4: Beautiful,
0: beautiful. I love the coral bark. It's, yeah. and, and the fact that only the south side really gets that super beautiful <laughs> red. I mean, at least in the landscape, you're not rotating your trees. I yeah. guess in a bonsai form, you could probably get the whole, the whole trunk to take on the reddish color. Well,
1: it'll eventually turn to gray. But the twigs will will always be... Some part of the twigs will always be that coral bark.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Would you say that Acer palmatum is your favorite? Uh,
1: Probably tridents are my favorite. Tridents? Yeah. Now, with tridents,
0: do you pinch them in the same way that you pinch a Japanese maple? Where you you don't remove that center bud? No. Okay.
1: Well, um, you remove the center bud, but not at the same time. So... With tridents, uh, so with Japanese maples, you're doing it to to tame down the strength of the new shoots. Um, with a trident that's been developed for a while, you don't have quite that same really strong push coming out. So you'll get nodes that are that are fairly small naturally. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't if you don't take off, that terminal bud at some point, then that shoot will just keep increasing. It won't branch. It'll just keep increasing, and it'll look like a like a large thorn there. Right. So ultimately, you need to pinch out that tip in order to get side branching. Gotcha. So, but you don't have to do it right away because it doesn't elongate um, nearly as much as Japanese maples do.
0: And you would pinch out that tip instead of pruning it back then you could do either one you can do either one and yeah. it, and, and as far as you're concerned the product is the same yes relatively
1: um uh, yeah it's I mean it's I use the same standard deciduous technique I would normally use let it grow four or five cut it back to one mm-hmm. and repeat as often as you have to
0: so if you did have a trident that wasn't as quote-unquote tame, as wasn't wasn't as calmed down and distributed yeah. in terms of its energy, would you pinch that central stem in the same way that you pinch a Japanese maple to try and, and slow it down and calm it down? No. No, still no.
1: No, because cause the first couple of nodes on a trident when they're pushing are still fairly small. Gotcha. With a, with a Japanese maple, that first node might be more than an inch, inch mm-hmm. and a quarter, inch and a half, mm-hmm. if it's really, really strong. Uh, I don't normally see that on trident. So the, the first, it's only the first note or two that I'm really interested in anyway. So those are typically um, fairly small.
0: Yeah, interesting. Do you think with um, with deciduous trees that they determine their own aesthetic, kind of?
3: Hmm.
1: Uh, ask me that in a different way. I'm not sure.
0: Do you think that it is possible to, uh, obviously you could dramatically alter the, the shape of the branches at a young age on a beach and turn it into a more pine formed tree. But just by the inherent growth habit of the twigging and the orientation of the buds and whatnot, do you think deciduous trees kind of have their own aesthetic that they create even though you're doing the discipline management to get finer and finer ramification, you're not really changing mm-hmm. the natural growth habit of the tree in terms of its shape, are you?
1: If you're growing them slowly, you're not changing their natural shape. Mm-hmm. If you grow them fast, then you then you will. So by that, I mean, if, you're, if you let the shoot really extend... Uh, or the main trunk really extend, you'll get long nodes. But the buds that, that are on there will reorient themselves as that strong chute passes by. So buds that would be typically aligned with the chute will almost pivot to 90 degrees right. away. And so if, if you allow that to happen, you get really awkward really awkward movement in the branches. Because if you prune back to, to one node now and you've got um, twigs pointing out 90 degrees, you actually have kind of like a hammerhead into the branch. What can you do with it? Right. You can't do much. Yeah, you with create that
0: a, big obtuse crotch.
1: You're, yeah, you're creating 90-degree angles mm-hmm. in branches, which is unusual and difficult to work with.
0: And, and not really beautiful...
1: Not really, unless you make the whole tree like that. Mm-hmm. So you're making, you're making a really kind of crazy shaped tree,
0: almost like a pinging form or something. Yeah,
1: I mean you can get away with it, but it's yeah, it becomes almost abstract, much more abstract than you would normally see in nature.
0: So this is my question, though, in terms of when you were cultivating a lot of your, uh, and, and I mean you're continuing to cultivate young trees and stuff, but. When you, were, when you cultivate a tree and you look at the refined and see the refined version and product of your technique now, was there ever a time in that cultivation where you were letting things run with that kind of vigor?
1: Um, let's see. I have to think back. So I'm sure that the answer to that is yes.
0: Okay. So uh, like your Japanese maple downstairs in the workshop, were you letting that, when you were first trying to build branches or build girth in the trunk, were you letting it run with any kind of vigor?
1: Um, in that case probably not. No. Not that one. No, because it was already um, a reasonably well developed tree when I first got it. Okay. So I'm the second owner of that tree. Tree is sixty-five to seventy years old now. I've had it for probably twenty five years. Okay. Uh in in that time it has it has gotten bigger than it started. So it originally came in a pot that was, I don't know, 8 by 12. Mm-hmm. And so now it's in a pot that's at least four times that big.
0: Yeah, that's and crazy. It came to you in a pot that was 8
1: yeah. by 12? <laughs> Something like that, or not much bigger than that, yeah. Holy and cow. it was a trunk at that time. Well, the base of the tree now is three inches or more in diameter. Yeah. It's still not too much tall. I mean, it might be closer to three feet tall or two and a half to three feet tall. Yeah. So it hasn't gotten much taller, but it has certainly developed bulk with it.
0: So that thickening is just the product of year in, year out, copious quantities of twigs, not of yeah. this big, long running, rapid growing, no. uh no. You know, shoot or sacrificial branch or anything like that. And, and you see that there's not any big scars on the trunk of that right. where it was rapidly grown.
1: Right. No, I don't. The only time I would try doing something like that might be with, with trident maples mm-hmm. because they can heal over and with bumps they'll still look reasonable mm-hmm. uh, with a Japanese maple I that's not the case usually if you take if you make big cuts on a Japanese maple um, you have to spend an awful lot of time working on the transition to what's going to take over for that place where you've made yeah. the big cut. And that's a hard thing to do to make it look really, really good.
0: What about like a beach or something like that? Would oh, you beach see is even worse. Even worse yeah. in terms of healing capacity and whatnot.
1: Well, uh, you have to be much more careful with beach because they. I I did this accidentally on one of the first ones I had. I made a diagonal cut, kind of like halfway through the the trunk between two branches, and I just sealed it with cut paste. I didn't do anything special to it. And when the, the beach heeled over, before it heeled over, it, it sort of splayed out and then heeled over, and so it, it was ugly.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was
1: big, and it was coarse, and it was ugly where it heeled over. Yeah. Now I know that if I do that, I'll I'll wrap it with uh, um, like plastic tape or, or something to, to kind of squeeze it. To keep it in that position so mm. that when it heals, it's healing. It's not healing however it wants, it's healing within the, the space that I've given it.
0: Yeah. Plastic tape, like a parafilm or more solid than that?
1: No, like a, a grafting tape or something. Like, like a heavy
0: duty grafting yeah. tape. Yeah. So thicker than parafilm. It would have some compressive capacity. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And you just
1: tie it as tight as you can to. Uh, with, with cut paste, still, too. Though, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd still put the cut paste on it.
0: Now, what type of cut paste? Because I know like a callus mate that we typically use on conifers can cause some super, super aggressive callus formation. Maybe with constriction, that's okay. Do you have a specific cut paste that you use on your deciduous?
3: Mm,
1: I don't know the name of it. It's the grayish, greenish-
0: the putty stuff. Yeah, the putty. So you're not using liquid at all? No. Typically, you're just using putty? Yes. So you're only s- sealing with putty big wounds. You're not really using liquid on small wounds? or. No. Uh, okay. Because the liquid stuff, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it delivers a high amount of uh, what I think is, I, I believe, acetic acid, which is, I mean, it's just causing rampant cellular division, which is yeah. a robust, you have this exposed cambial layer and all of a sudden it's like adding, <laughs> yeah, it's like a fuel to the fire kind of.
1: Well, I've noticed on on my number one birch tree, uh, there are places where it has healed over and I'm getting like a bump there. It was, and I don't know if, um, I don't think that I've used the uh, the liquid, uh, cut paste on there, mm-hmm. but it seems like it's reacting to that kind of thing, where it's throwing out excessive cells when it's not something I really wanted. Right. Because normally, for cuts that aren't very large, and these were on like twigs less than an eighth of an inch, so they were pretty small stuff. But but still, I'm getting like a quarter inch bump on something like that. It it almost looked like you know sometimes you you see where the bark has got a wasp thing or something like that, and it creates a little mounder. Yeah, there. It looks almost like that, but it's weird. I mm. haven't figured out exactly what went on because I think I'm the only one who does the pruning on that one. So it, I don't think anybody else would have put the liquid cut paste on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's such an... In, I mean, I feel like deciduous is so nuanced um, from from the desire to have this relatively clean scarless trunk if that if that is in fact the objective right not every piece of deciduous material lends itself to that but yeah. if that is the objective all of a sudden the way that you have to manage that the way you form that wound what you treat it with over the course of time etc is it, it's so nuanced and the unfortunate thing is as you learn several years later how bad you screwed it up several <laughs> years prior <laughs> which is even well, more devastating
1: So one thing you do is you don't put wire on a Japanese maple, right? Because 80%, 90% of the time you'll leave wire marks. Yeah, yeah. And I learned that early on, uh, and I don't make that mistake anymore. Even though I know better, I will still make that mistake one out of 10 times or one out of 20 times, whatever, and essentially you have to cut off that branch if, if you really want this superb tree. Yeah. And you can't show it with that kind of wire scar on.
0: So even though you know that you still try it from time to time, you're still tempted?
1: Uh, Yes. (laughs) But so yes and no. Uh, I do not wire Japanese maples to shape branches. I will wire them to reposition branches occasionally. So for that, it's a loose wire to kind of nudge it into a position that I would prefer, or I'll use a guy wire to pull it up or to separate branches a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I'm not using it to shape. So the the wire is not on as long and it's not on as tight because mm-hmm. I don't have to create curves. The, the branches already have the curves. It's just that it's not in exactly the right position.
0: The branches have the curves from the pruning um, yes. process that you apply. Right. And I, 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 I think it's interesting to go back to just the notion of when you prune and how it impacts the shape of the buds and the direction and angle that they're going to now grow from that central stem's position. Because when Andrew was here, he was talking about genetics impacting that and, and, and to think that there's also timing that impacts that. Because I've seen it. I mean, you you watch it, you literally watch it happen. I mean, you can watch the buds, and it happens even when you think about, say, a pine has this beautiful tuft of needles and the central candle grows out. And as those needles elongate, all the older needles fold open, And all of a sudden, what was a beautiful you know tuft of needles last year has all these downward dangling needles because mm-hmm. of this natural progression any any elongating growth has to change the orientation of the buds behind it otherwise they're not set up for success nor is that tip it's yeah. it's a matter of efficiency in the system of shape but but um to think about all of it when you start to quantify that macro into the micro practice of bonsai is really it really is nuanced and it really is fascinating and and also the the notion of growing a tree significantly more slowly over the course of time and really leaning on the pruning practice to develop that branch ramification and, and shape style directive pruning as a specific practice in deciduous is, it it is kind of magical at this point in time after you've wired, you know, thousands of trees and it's like, (laughs) Oh man, just to come back and prune this sounds so nice. I know I got 20 years of this before it's going to pay off, but.
1: Well, there's that side of it too, though, that it does take, Longer to develop the ramification, the the fullness in in deciduous trees. Mm-hmm. But I still do. I still do wire quite a few trees. It's just the ones with thin bark, like uh, Japanese maple or hackberry or um, Princess persimmon. If I were to wire those, then I would use raffia or I'd use something to. Um, cushion the bark away from the wire.
0: So you would actually wrap the branch in raffia or you'd wrap yes. the wire in raffia?
1: Um, I would wrap the branch in raffia or I'd wrap the wire with uh, VET tape or something yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, something something to take away the abrasiveness. Yeah. And do you, do you use just aluminum on your deciduous or, or do you ever dabble in copper on deciduous?
1: I have been known to dabble in copper, but mostly for Chinese quince. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is the Chinese quince have heavy leaves. So I've got a Chinese quince where the leaves are not very large, like an inch and a half typically, I guess maybe, but they are a heavy texture. And so if the uh, branches are somewhat long, then the, the weight of the leaves, particularly if they're rained on or whatever, get pounded by rain, they tend to cause the branches to droop, mm-hmm. and the aluminum wire um, is because it's more flexible. Will won't prevent it enough from drooping. Yeah, the copper wire because it hardens, <laughs> it hardens as fast as you bend it. Uh, sh- should prevent it most of the time from from drooping like that. Mm-hmm. So I just finished rewiring. A, Chinese quince last year uh, where I took the branches that had gotten to be more horizontal and moved them back up 20 degrees or so from where they were.
0: So they actually laid down because of the weight of the canopy consistently yes. over the course of years.
1: Yeah. And because, uh, because I, the branches that I have, uh, so there's you know, two ways that you can build a branch, either clip and grow or let it extend and wire it. Mm-hmm. So on the Chinese quince, I let it extend, even though it had small small distances between nodes, I let it extend far and then wired it. So I in a sense, I built the branches quicker that way, except that the branches weren't strong enough for that length to be able to handle the weight of the leaves. Makes sense. And so that would cause them to, to bend down more. Mm-hmm. So if you just... Built it in small increments, like you might do a trident maple, then uh, you wouldn't have that issue so much. But because of that way I did it, then um, I had to rewire it hmm. this time with copper.
0: And so, if you if you build branches that way, where you're letting it elongate, you're wiring it out and creating the shape. As you continue to prune that, you're building interior ramification, right? I mean, like there's, there's more branches yeah. than just that elongating shoot. Do you oftentimes it's, find that you're cutting back to that over the course of time to get that finer transition? Even though you're building the more rapid branch now, are you mm-hmm. always thinking about cutting back to continue improving no. it? No.
1: No. Uh, no. When, when I take that longer branch and wire it out, so I've done this several times. I've done it to a, a plum tree. Uh, This past year, I rewired a plum, uh, an ume, and I've done this same thing on my large hawthorn. So all the shoots came out straight initially. And so I wired them into crooked branches. And if I do nothing else, then they have the shape that I want them to. Now I could cut it back to to shorter branches less extension but the only reason i do that is if i'd want the overall size of the tree to be smaller gotcha i mean because i'm happy with the shape that i've given those branches and i expect that they will increase their ramification in and around the the branch that i built mm.
4: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. interesting now, I might have asked you this last time, but I'm going to come back to it because finally, okay. I, I've found I've found a ginkgo that I that I really like.
1: <laughs> do you have any ginkgo? I do have one or two. Mm-hmm. I have one and a uh, some kind of dwarf variety also.
0: Have you found the ways to get ginkgo to really ramify?
1: I do the same thing. They still ramify for me. Mm-hmm. They're just slow.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you let them grow out four or five nodes, cut them back to one or two? Yep. And and then the whole thing starts over again? Yep. And do you ever have any issue with ginkgo losing strength in, in any of the branches over the course of time?
1: Um, not usually, no.
0: No? Do you find you have to prune the apex more than the lower branches or vice versa?
1: The... The apex on the one that I have is not as... It doesn't ramify as much as these side branches do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because it's been repeatedly cut back or something else is going on.
0: And would there be any reason why somebody would let a ginkgo push a bunch of shoots from the base of the trunk?
1: Um, well... A lot of times, ginkgos are grown in flame style, right, or flame shape, and so they'll. Someone will often use extra shoots coming up from the base to kind of build that almost a kind of a clump style. Yeah, gotcha. So my the, the ginkgo that I have has a number of those shoots from around the base as well. It does. It does. So, okay. um, so I've left them there for right now, and whether they stay there. Finally, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but, but it's not uncommon for them to, for a ginkgo first to develop a basal flare there and then from shoots to come out from the basal flare.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The one that, I don't know if you saw the one that's in the greenhouse that I picked up, um, from down in California. But, but I'd be
1: happy to take it home even though I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: it, it, it it's really nice. It's nice. Small size. I, I've wanted to be experimenting with ginkgo and figure it out. I had, <clears throat> I'll never forget this in college. My college roommate got us a landscaping gig one summer between our freshman and sophomore year, uh, and we went and just busted our just busted our ass uh for three three four weeks did an entire landscape installation hardscaping soft uh, just a whole gig and uh and we got paid we got paid pretty well uh but we took all of our money up to el dorado bonsai in Placerville, <laughs> right like f- like a month of work this is the probably the money i needed to save uh, to, to have through the first quarter of school, we went up to El Dorado, and I just, <laughs> I mean, I, I emptied the clip on, on bonsai trees. And one of the trees I got was this Chi Chi Ginkgo uh-huh. that was just phenomenal. And, and one of the nuances of it from what I was told is that Kathy Shaner had worked on it a lot. And at that time, I mean, this is early 2000s. Kathy, Kathy Shaner was, was legendary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just, you know, I was like, Oh, so then all of a sudden this tree has provenance and it's a chichi ginkgo, which are just really interesting because they have that sort of, those sort of sacks that hang down off of them. Um, And it was just a slow march towards death the minute that it (laughs) injured my hands for multiple reasons that I now understand. Uh, But ever since then, I've always been very afraid of ginkgo. (laughs) And uh, and I want to correct the ship. I have the same relationship with olive, which is just crazy. Mm. I, I have not had great success with olive, Probably because I love them too much, and I fear I love the ginkgo too much as well. But anyways, this is my <laughs> attempt at redemption and writing, writing the, uh, correcting hey. the course of the of the ship.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, ginkgos can be very stiff trees, mm-hmm. and a lot of times you don't get much movement in the trunk. So, but they're also usually quite strong growers. So fact that you were intent upon killing yours
0: <laughs> oh I, I i i loved it to, i pruned it so much well
1: you might not want to do it that much then, yeah you know. <laughs> yeah well you know ginkgo is one of the oldest trees around and and they don't they don't heal over scars well at all mm-hmm. if at all i don't mm-hmm. even know so you can't be quite as liberal with them as you would be with a trident maple or something like that. Right. So you have to be a little bit cautious. But their roots are very strong and, and they root pretty easily. So um, normally... It's harder to kill a ginkgo than you experienced.
0: You're making me feel worse about it, but appreciate that. No, I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) Do you you pretty much lean on 100%
0: akadama for your deciduous, or do you have a different soil mix? How how do you go about uh, soils?
1: Um, My mix is something like 60% lava, 40% akadama. Oh, wow. It might be 50-50. It changes a little bit each year, but... Um, it's probably something like that.
0: And what what does the lava do for you? Why do you use the lava uh,
1: for better drainage? Mm-hmm. I also, I think we may have talked about this one time. I don't use uh, pumice, and the reason is because it turns bright white in in sunlight, uh, and it it's kind of a jarring color to me when I see it there. So, I just mix red and black lava and and akadama, and it's a nice pleasing. Color combination, and it seems to me that the drainage or the water holding capability of the lava is not too much different than the pumice. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, or at least it, the combination of akadama can hold water, and and the um, uh, the lava can hold moisture in its little crevices. Seems to be sufficient for my purpose. Mm
0: How, do you do you feel like uh, is that a soil mix that you've evolved over the course of time, or is that what you started with and it's just continued to work for you?
1: No, when I started with when I started with bonsai, there was no akadama here in the states. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, I don't even remember now. What we have, what we would use is a combination of lava and uh, uh, bark. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Bark nuggets. Yeah. So I would used redwood bark and fir bark chunks and I don't know some other things like that too <laughs> and they were okay you know if if you're transplanting every two years it's not that much of a problem because yeah. most of the time that that organic stuff is not decomposing now that means you have to clean out the roots more substantially than you might otherwise do so but uh, but it, it wasn't bad it's just that the soil mixes are better now
4: mm. Hmm.
1: I mean, I I never used something like potting mix in the soil, so it was always nuggets of some kind that would uh, give it better drainage.
0: Yeah. Are there any deciduous species that you hate?
1: Any deciduous species that I hate? There's some that I'm not as good with.
0: uh uh-huh. What? What would like? Like what? What would like be one? Like elms. Uh huh.
1: Um. Elms do not respond to my to my standard technique of let it grow out four or five nodes, cut it back to one. Because you cut it back to one and it kind of abandons that and often dies back to the trunk or to the side branch and then pops out six shoots from there. So it's a little bit more difficult for me. And also because um, the experience with elms is you can't wire them very well, that they will often just forego the branch if you if you stress it with wire. Mm-hmm. So the kind of things I like to do, taking a shoot and wire into shape and then letting it fill out around itself, just doesn't lend itself to that. And, and the kind of pruning that I do has not given me great results with Elm.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Isn't that
0: funny that, that nobody can nobody can be good with every species? It's true. It's just not possible. Yeah. I I mean uh, Zelkova. My experience <laughs> with Zelkova is exactly what you've just described. And and other people you talk with about Zelkova and they'll say, oh yeah, another bulletproof.
3: Yeah.
0: And it's just like, well, I have not experienced that. That is not that is not my yeah. that is not my experience with that.
1: Well, yeah. you know, people have. People have been amazed at the birches that I grow. And for me, birch is a very easy subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, It responds very well to the kind of techniques that I use. But other people have tremendous problems with it, with dieback and a lot of other issues. And for me, not so much.
0: Yeah, but I think you've defined something really interesting tonight. And I mean, this is why I wanted to to, to talk with you again about your approach and about the deciduous approach in general I think the first time we talked I was really trying to wrap my mind around how it was you were creating the quality and caliber of deciduous trees that you were creating and I think you shared how you know your approach uh, of letting it grow out and then cutting it back to one and just sort of building up the scar tissue compartmentalized growth etc uh, quant C- copious quantities of very tight, compact, short internode, uh, ramified buds. And mm-hmm. now diving in a little bit deeper, understanding that your timing for pruning is also changing the angle of emergence of those. You're not letting it get so vigorous that they emerge at a 90 degree, right. understanding your pinching of the Japanese maple happening, what I would consider to be far earlier than probably most people are thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you did that for us on film today is incredible. But I think you define something really interesting with your Quince approach, which is, hey, there's two ways to build a branch here. Because I think a lot of people do think about letting it elongate, getting stronger, putting wire on it, and and then utilizing that that methodology. So to have those two approaches and the comparison of the two, and then to recognize that even inside of those – not necessarily every like at your experience with Elm. you wire it. It aborts the branch, goes back to the base. You get six shoots as a result. And <laughs> stuff like that. This is how a Zokova behaves for me. and I would consider both of those to be they they have they share similarities yeah. to a degree. It's really interesting to evolve the conversation because the more that we talk about it, the more that these little nuances kind of come out and we start to recognize the different approaches that are possible in the deciduous model. And this is like, this is absolutely what over the course of 10 years of just talking almost entirely and strictly about conifers has done for me um, because that conversation has grown and evolved. Like I look at the first year that I taught classes at Mirai and I mean, still the, some of those students are, are, are students at, at Mirai, but to think about what they got in the first year versus the lecture that I give my my first year classes ten years later, it's like golly, I re- I really wasn't giving him much, you know. Like <laughs> I did my best, but the the talking about it and teasing it out and then doing it and seeing it work and seeing it not work, you just you you have this tremendous knowledge of deciduous over the course of time, and it's like Dennis, who taught you that, but it's just the product of having yeah, done it. I just I would it. assume,
1: yeah, you just build it over time, and you pay attention you know, see what works and what doesn't work. And, mm-hmm. and if something works, you see that it works consistently or if, if it's not for some reason, you try to, you know, piece the things together. Look, yeah. for the, look for the patterns in what you're doing.
0: Were there other people growing deciduous trees that kind of inspired you or that you tried to glean some knowledge off of when you were over the course of your journey, like, you know, yeah. even now or in the beginning? or in, Yeah?
1: Yeah, probably Dennis Makashima was the was the first of the big influences Uh uh, in a couple of ways, because he had a study group um, in Oakland that I became part of. And uh, it was kind of everybody learns from one another. Uh, So I have a similar kind of study group now for kind of advanced deciduous cultivation. So I've, I've, Sort of paid it forward, I guess you could say, yeah. in in what we're doing there. But he was one of the first to, to, um, to push the fact that deciduous styling is not the same as pine styling, that that they that they should definitely not look the same because they don't grow in a similar kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so th- that registered with me. Um, some work with Kathy as well, and then probably the other big influence was Dave DeGroat, okay. and uh, and with he has a lot of he's had a lot of experience with with a variety of deciduous trees, and he was also um, kind of keyed into the fact that deciduous trees should have shapes where the branches grow up and out rather than down and away,
4: mm-hmm.
1: and I mean other people have talked about that, but it's, well, he and I worked on one in particular, a, uh, a plum tree that I have. It's the one that I just recently rewired too.
0: Was uh, that the one that was in the uh, rendezvous? Little tiny, little tiny plum? Mm,
4: Maybe that was a pear. No.
0: You had a little yeah. mind blower in that. Anyways, sorry. Uh,
1: so, th- so this one I had styled it probably more like a pine tree initially. The branches came out somewhat horizontally rather than up and out. So we wrapped the branches uh, with raffia and put big heavy copper wire on them and bent them up 30 to 40 degrees from the horizontal position where they were. I mean, the tree looked ugly, almost hopeless <laughs> initially. uh
3: uh-huh.
1: You know, it's something where you look at the tree and, and you know you're not doing something right, but you couldn't quite figure out what it was it needed. And what it needed was some big copper wire, the branches brought up, you know, much more sharply than they were from the base, so you don't get a U-shaped curve. You know, you, if you... if yeah, you,
0: Instead of out and up, you get yeah, up and out, right? You right. get that acute towards right. the upper You don't want brash. it to go...
1: Out and up, you want it to go up and down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you put it precisely there. So, um, so we did that, and it's it's kind of a light bulb went off and say, I get it. You know, I understand what I have been doing wrong before and why I was not happy with, with how some of the deciduous trees are being shaped.
4: Mm,
0: interesting.
1: So I've kind of taken that and run with it since then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Dave Groot is, uh, is an unsung influencer in North American bonsai that Mm -hmm. maybe not a lot of people recognize just how much of an impact he's had. When we went to the Montreal Botanical uh, Garden and saw that collection and and, and my awareness of David Easterbrook's contributions to North America. That was really uh, interesting to speak with him. But I feel like Dave DeGroote's another one of these guys that's just had a, uh, an impact, such a broad spread impact on yeah. North American bonsai. He certainly influenced me. Uh, the big, all, When David DeGroote styled an elm with one of the lower branches being super short and compact to the trunk, and then he said, well, that's how an older elm grows. They shed yeah. all the lower branches and get this big upper canopy, and then they they start to shoot again once sun and light gets to the interior again. And I was just like, "Oh, oh holy cow!" It's like <laughs> you've just explained so much, you know. And it's re- it's real. It's an image yeah. you see constantly, and he he just really quantified that. Uh, I would love to get him on the podcast and talk with him because I mean he's yeah just getting to work with him at the. Um, the Pacific Rim Collection before it became the Pacific Bones Museum was really was really impactful. But that's interesting that he also had a big influence on you.
1: Well, in another way too, because uh, w- he would come down to Oakland for our shows and do uh, a critique of the shows, each, not each year, but a couple every couple of years. And he, Dave is always very kind. But in particular, he would... as he was walking around he would say now if the artist intended this then I think it was quite successful or something to that effect but he called us artists
4: Mm.
1: which was being very kind probably at the stage (laughs) where we were at that time but but at some point that stuck in my head and and I figured that's exactly what I'm doing here I am creating art out of living plant material so it wasn't just a hobby it was something more special
0: so he he quantified what made it significant then yeah. yeah interesting i guess he i guess he always did that take that approach yeah yeah fascinating And i mean the the lineage from von banting and mm. his time in new orleans when he was in the symphony and and then coming out yeah. here to the pacific coast and yeah man rich ri- really rich stuff and it, and 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 do you observe at all sort of any current generation or, or people now seeming to carry the torch? I mean, because when I think about really prominent deciduous practitioners, there's a, obviously a lot of people on the East Coast, but Bill Valvanis, I think, yeah. has has created a lot of trees from cuttings and air layers and, and seed, much like you, and really taken them through the whole scope of their life as a bonsai with this very... I think, dedicated, diligent approach to the disciplined aspects. And have you ever been to see his collection?
1: Belvanus? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what did you think about that?
1: He has some very nice trees there.
0: He has some He has some really impressive yeah, I mean, he's, stuff.
1: He's been working working at a long time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's been able to get some really high quality trees. Yeah. He had uh, one of the best Arakawa uh, pine bark maple yeah pine bark maples that I've ever seen because mm-hmm. a lot of those trees don't have much um, curve to them and this one had just magnificent curve yeah it wasn't there the last time so I don't know uh, if there's something happened to it or if he sold it or traded it or sure. whatever but
0: yeah his shishigashira that he's grown from cutting I think I I'd, I'd, that that's one of yeah. my most favorite deciduous trees in North America
1: and he's got a great crab apple
0: yeah um uh, yeah,
1: well, a lot of other, other really nice trees.
0: There, so yeah. interesting. Yeah, and and do you? I mean, you've talked a lot about plum uh, tonight, or you you've mentioned your plum a couple times. And uh, and again, I saw a really charming pair. I'm I'm now sure it's a pair oh, that the, I saw. That dwarf Asian pear. There yeah, 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 there yeah. there you go. Do you, are do you gravitate towards flowering and fruiting trees as much as you do true deciduous? Do you delineate the two no. in the way that you handle them? No.
1: No, I treat them essentially the same.
0: In terms of ramification building and all yeah. of that. Now, do you have to be careful with flowering and fruiting trees because some of them do fruit and flower on old wood versus new wood and in your timing for pruning or?
1: Um, generally, that doesn't seem to be a problem.
0: Then, you, So with your management of the new growth, yeah. you haven't impacted or impeded the species that you cultivate. From flowering or fruiting. Yeah, because I'm
1: typically not cutting back flowering wood. I mean, if it's there, it's usually like on a crab apple, it might be on short, stubby side branches. So I'm not doing a lot of pruning back on those. Mm -hmm. Those will only increase marginally each year anyway. So one year I might cut it back if I need extra ramification there. but um, So I might lose part of a blooms in one year, but... There'll be other blooms and a lot more of them, other parts of the tree.
0: Yeah. And and what about apple, just as a, like a full-size apple kind of a... Do you have any of those? Do you work you, with You those?
1: should see uh, Gravenstein. Yeah? <laughs> I do. And it has... Well, it, it needs to be repotted because it's lost a little bit of vitality. Uh, so it doesn't throw out as many apples as it used to. Uh, the branches are still doing fine, but it requires... Uh, a wiring now because the apples are they're not full size but they're maybe three-quarter size okay. two-thirds to three-quarter size so they're probably three inches in diameter two and a half to three inches in diameter at one time i had 20 of those on the tree 20, twenty-two 22
4: oh, apples like
1: that on the tree now the trunk of the tree is six seven inches diameter okay came from jim gremel originally um
0: Did he grow it in the field or something? He, uh,
1: when he built his house, the the land that he bought had an apple orchard on it.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: And so, being the true bonsai connoisseur that he was, he cut down the apple orchard to three feet high, let it re-sprout, and then dug those up for (laughs) for bonsai (laughs) purposes.
0: That's awesome.
1: When when I moved to Oregon, I talked to Jim and... um, we decided to do a trade. And so I think he got some large number of princess persimmons, uh, a lot of red fruiting ones especially, which is one of my favorites. Uh, and in return, I got the Gravenstein apple, uh, and ume, which is the one I just wired, it's mm-hmm. a killer tree, uh, and uh, the dwarf Asian pear. I'll be darned. So and so all those trees I've I've grown them quite considerably since that time. The uh-huh. the dwarf Asian pear again had all the branches straight initially, so none of the branches are straight anymore. It mm-hmm. has a fully developed crown and full ramification all over. So
0: it's a magical tree. It's it's magical.
1: It's show ready.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful <laughs> tree. Wow. And uh, I mean, I'm just bouncing around questions. All the questions I have in my head, I hope this is working for you. That's fine. Um, one of the con- sort of consistent discussions, and I want to come back to flowering and fruiting in terms <clears throat> of fall fertilization, but one of the consistent discussions, since you mentioned ume and, and and now understanding you've had this ume for a very long time, yeah, is that over the course of time, the older branches tend to lose strength or die back. And, uh, maybe aren't capable of, of being pruned as much. Have you found that to be true with ume? Do you have to be, is there a, a transition between old branches and new growth, or do you have to do things to revitalize older branches on ume?
1: I think with ume, you may have to let them grow. Like, like you say, once every five, six, seven years, you have to let, you have to give them some, um, some time to get extra strength in some of their old branches. hmm uh, because sometimes you'll lose some twigs, maybe as a result of that. But I think if you if you are consistent in repotting them, uh, one of the issues with repotting is the roots seem to be very fragile. So if you take a root hook, instead of pulling dirt or whatever away from the roots, you'll often take off half the root as well. Oh, okay. So you have to be really quite careful and not— being too aggressive with the combing out of roots because you'll rip through roots very easily. Uh huh. So I've had a little bit more of a problem growing ume than I have plum trees or cherry trees and a couple of the other ones like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the necessity to regain that vitality seems to be more applicable to them periodically than maybe other species.
1: Yes, I think so. Okay. again, I don't know whether it's just me or whether it's, it's uh, Ume. So one of these,
0: I mean, but this is a consistent thing that you hear about Ume and, and and a limitation or frustration that a lot of people have had. And then I think moving forward with Ume in terms of how do you, do you handle them in the same way you handle all of the other deciduous as well, in terms of ramification creation or. um,
1: Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. Although I tend to tend to, let the shoots grow longer and then wire them into place.
0: Got you. Okay. So, this is something more like a quince where you're actually yeah. allowing the shoots to elongate, wiring them into the shape that you want. Yeah. And still pruning at some point, though. Yes. And that causes ramification to occur?
1: Yes. I mean, um, it'll, the, the ume will ramify anyway, but you might have a longer section that does not ramify until you snip the tip of it. Got you. Uh, but it'll eventually backbud so it'll it'll get there
0: on a, so if you get a long internode on an ume that internode that long internode could potentially form a backbud over the course of time
1: um you said a long internode yeah so you a, let
0: a uh, you let a shoot grow out and you might have a little bit of a longer internode between buds will it backbud in between that internode no. at some point no, no. okay no so you have to keep tight inner nodes yes. on it if you want. Okay. right. So right. the
1: extension that I'm getting is built on still my rule of thumb, where everything's three quarters of an inch or less between nodes. Mm-hmm. if it If it's longer than that, occasionally, I will keep it and very cleverly put a bend in there to make it look like there's a node there. And point that bend downward or backward toward the trunk, uh-huh. so it looks natural that it would never have a branch at that place where it's never going to have a branch anyway. Makes sense.
4: Makes sense.
1: Or I could just cut it back. So sometimes the rest of the shoot looks really good, and you just have some one place where it's too long. You just add an extra wrap of wire around, or short, or shorten it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Makes sense. That makes sense. And then uh, and. And then in terms of their flowering, I mean, in Japan, it, there was always a uh, sort of a well-known discussion that you, you didn't really prune ume after June. And obviously, you're talking about trees that are highly refined and the energy is very highly distributed. Um, but kind of pruning towards the latter end of June, anything that occurred after that typically tended to be a smoother leaf, which was an indication in Japan, at least with the obai and some of the varieties that they're using, that smoother leaf, that that's holding a flower bud in the axle of the petiole where it connects to the stem. Mm. And if it had a sandpapery kind of texture, that that was a vegetative bud. And if you prune past that end of June, maybe early July at the very latest, you would almost get all vegetative buds and no flower buds. I don't know if you've had ex- that same experience with your techniques.
1: Yeah. Um. I have a different experience, so let me tell you what I think I know because it's different than what you've just described. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you prune, in in most uh, members of the prunus family, if you prune after, say, mid-July, you're likely to be pruning off flowers from next year. right because by then they'll set their flower buds. But their flower buds should be visible. Flower buds are on both sides of a leaf bud. So wherever you have a leaf bud, quite often you'll have two flower buds right at the base of that. Mm. So you'll often see you know, three buds in a row there. The middle is the leaf bud, the two two on the side are flower buds. So I that's why when you talked about kind of what they're doing in Japan and didn't really make that much sense to me. Mm. I or I, I don't relate to it in the same way. It could be that I'm dealing with different cultivars of ume than they have or Possibly. Possibly yeah.
0: or or <clears throat> or we might be saying the same thing and they're just simply trying to not prune off flower buds, right? That right. potentially so, could be what we're talking about.
1: Right. So if you're pruning by mid-July to certainly by August, you'll see where the the flower buds are. Mm. And and they'll be they'll be noticeable because they're positioned differently than the leaf bud. So if you only see one bud at a point, it's most likely to be a leaf bud. Mm-hmm. If you see two, one of them is probably a flower bud, and the other leaf bud. Mm-hmm. If you see three, the two on the outside are flower buds.
0: Yeah, interesting. Hmm. And coming back to the whole flowering and fruiting discussion, I think a a, a lot of questions around fall fertilization. Um, and, I, and I mean, actually, there's questions for deciduous too, too that I'll ask you, but um, the necessity for potassium and phosphorus and some of these other flower and fruit stimulating, and I'm, I don't know how accurate that is, but do you find that to be true or do you change your fall fertilization specifically for flowering and fruiting trees to try and promote flowering and fruiting?
1: Um, sometimes I'll play with it, but I can't say that I've establish any consistency about it either so i will sometimes use something like blossom booster or something like that that has the two higher numbers the last two are the higher numbers p, right. and, k. Hmm? Yeah. p and k yeah phosphorus and potassium so or something like 0 01010 in the fall mm-hmm. uh or um yeah um blossom booster 01010 are kind of the the two that i've used in the past yeah I'd, Do you blend that with any, like, CalMag or anything like that, or no? I don't. I'm fairly simple in how I yeah, handle that. Yeah. So I've I i I've done it a little bit. I don't know that I've seen dramatic differences one way or the other. I think if you feed them sufficiently with a relatively low-balanced fertilizer then they'll do okay. If if you're having a hard time getting certain things to flower, then yeah, I'd say try the, mm-hmm. the blossom booster. See if it helps. Yeah.
0: And, and with the 0-10-10, I mean, I think that that transitions <clears throat> into just deciduous in general. There is a lot of discussion that not not feeding with a high nitrogen feed uh, in, in the middle to latter portion of fall is a smart decision. Be, um, and also... You know, high nitrogen versus a relatively low proportioned organic are two very different things. How do you handle fall fertilization on all of your deciduous?
1: Um, I don't generally fertilize in the fall. You don't fertilize in the I fall? I don't. I mean, they may have some, some leftover fertilizer in the tea bags, Interesting. But um, they don't get anything special other than maybe something like um, something to help the, the flowering.
0: Yeah. So you don't, you don't fertilize at all. So you'll fertilize twice. First flush hardens off. Yeah. You'll fertilize after the first flush hardens off in the spring probably. twice. And then you're kind of done for the year.
1: Probably, yeah, four to six weeks after the the first one, I'll, it'll get a second one and probably not after that.
0: And is that, is that
1: intentional?
0: I, obviously, yes. it's intentional. <laughs> I think so. But, th- but this is to keep the ramifications super fine?
1: Um, yes. Also, the belief that they don't really need that that extra fertilizer going into the fall. Mm-hmm. So, I, uh, as I was growing up, um, the consensus was you don't want to push growth too late. And so, feeding late might cause... Uh, extra shoots to to pop out that would get lost in winter time yeah. or or weaken the tree so that's kind of the background that I bring to it. I don't know if that's considered to be true anymore, but they don't seem to be hurt by um, not giving extra fertilizer in the fall
0: I mean I think that that's definitely that definitely is a possibility just because deciduous are such high water mobility species and and obviously, Ionic exchange is hitching a ride on that water and can sometimes maybe with, with the right temperature and the right accumulation of, of potential uh, supplemental nutrition stimulate some more metabolic activity or drive that to happen more easily. So I, I agree with that and I think that's why a lot of people do try to back off on nitrogen specifically in the fall. But I think it's fascinating that that is what kind of created the fertilizer approach that you have and it To talk about all of your techniques without that piece of information uh, being there would be, uh, I think, for a lot of people to not fully understand. I'm so glad we just talked about that because fall fertilization, that's when you're accumulating all the vascular tissue. And when you think about a tree's growth, the vascular tissue accumulation are the highways for next year. It's the tree amassing the energy that it's going to expand upon what it currently has. Mm -hmm. That fall... Period of time is how a tree gets bigger every year, and if in it, it, in most instances, specific, especially for conifers, I would say, I mean, I, deciduous, definitively for sure as well. If you're trying to expand their size, thickness, etc., that's when your branches are going to swell. But for conifers, you'd say, oh man, that's the time of year that you want to be fertilizing if you're only going to fertilize once because it's going to create the energy that produces the foliar mass next year, and it's going to create the highways that transport the resources both up to and down from. Yeah. But when I look at the ramification on your trees, the lack of fall fertilization just tied every single thing that you do together for me because you're not building up excessive highways and you're also not accumulating the stored energy that would cause the tree to have the resources to be exorbitantly bigger than what it is that year. It's going to amass sugars and starches via photosynthesis. Right. But you're not adding to the fire.
1: I'm not pushing it in the fall. You're,
0: you're not stoking the flames. And that is really when the really vigorous, elongating inner nodes, the really gigantic leaves, the resources to create those two things are generated in the fall prior to the next next year's spring. Yeah. And this makes... So much sense (laughs) because as I was looking at your Japanese maples down there and the fineness of the branching and thinking to myself, and I asked you, is this a cultivar or is this just a straight, you know, this is a green Japanese maple Acer palmatum and I've never seen branches that fine on just a straight genetic Acer palmatum and now I understand and i and I just really appreciate that conversation, yeah makes so much sense i could i uh yeah, man, I think the and here's where it gets really dicey in japan there are there are ways in 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 Japan, I would say. Obviously, different professionals approach fertilization and the execution of techniques, full defoliation, partial defoliation, pinching in the spring, not fertilizing in the spring, fertilizing aggressively in the spring, defoliating before they ever even harden off. I mean, there's a gajillion ways to handle trees, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In Europe, I mean, I look at Mario Comsta's work on deciduous trees, and he can feed Ultra aggressively and just be super on the ball of pruning and take yes. all that energy and just transition it really rapidly to build a tree very quickly, right? And and you could say, okay, that's an aesthetic. The slow way is an aesthetic. The uh, the thick rapidly thickening, and if you have the right healing techniques, you could do that, or you could just slowly accumulate over the course of time. Um, but it, it is so fascinating to understand the plethora of approaches.
1: Yeah, you can get to something close to the same final results in a lot of different ways. So, I told you about my approach most recently, but I've used Miracle Grow in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, they were younger trees. Yeah. And you're right. If you do something like that, then you have to stay on top of any new shoots that come out. You can't let them extend two feet, Mm -hmm. you know. So you still use the same pruning techniques where they'd extend four or five, you cut it back to one. You have to do that more religiously than you would if you're using a a, a lighter weight fertilizer.
4: Yeah.
1: I haven't done that in a long time using that because I don't really need that excess nitrogen in the plant anymore.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: So, uh, but you can certainly do it. Yeah. And as long as you're careful and watch the growth as a result of it. So if you do that, you're more likely to get the really strong shoots from the top of maples and the top of other trees that are uh, apically dominant. Yeah. So you just have to be much more careful.
0: But what an interesting discussion, too, about the potential change in approach over the course of time where – in the beginning, not necessarily allowing this rampant growth to create this really faulty, uh, you know, perpendicular origin of branches upon the pruning of that central shoot, but fertilizing more aggressively and staying on top of it and pruning more frequently using the fertilization to create the same energy that can drive that rapid expansion, just doing it in a way that gives you all of the desirable yeah. characteristics of deciduous development for those species. To think about that. And then as you start to accomplish that more primary and even that secondary structure, now backing off on that fertilization potentially. And this is where you're saying younger trees and I use Miracle Grow and I got away from it, but I had to stay on top of it. But now I don't need that. You're, you're, you're speaking about just sort of this really holistic arc of execution of the stage that the tree was in and how you were meeting it with fertilization and your technique is then responding yeah. to the fertilization and what you need to do to maintain the quality.
1: Right. Well, part of it is I've abandoned old techniques because what I found more important is I want short nodes, and I don't want branches that thicken quickly because I want to wire them in mm-hmm. some cases. Mm-hmm. I want them to extend small increments, maybe, maybe maybe a foot long, but still small increments where I can use all that. If they If they get too thick, then I won't be able to bend them like I want because I'll put some pretty sharp bends in. So I'm using one or two-year-old, often just nothing more than two-year-old shoots so that I can put... Not a ninety-degree bend in, but a, at least a forty-five, or some cases a sixty-degree angle bend in, into a deciduous shoot.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So you can do that if they're an eighth of an inch or less. You can't do that if they're three sixteenths or a quarter of an inch. Right. So if you let them get fat, you're going to either scar the bark or you're just going to have to do clip and grow.
4: So, And
0: and I guess that's where I was thinking, because my experience with Ume has always been with a heavily fertilized tree that produces this big, almost like a water shoot kind of lush, like pencil size, you know, a dowel of a branch that it's putting. You're like, you try to bend it and it's so brittle, but you're getting much finer pieces of growth out of your trees by how you're handling them too.
4: Yes. Huh.
0: Hot diggity dog, <laughs> an explosion in my brain. That's awesome. That's awesome. So,
2: you don't ever fold your feed or anything like that? Do you ever use I neem do. on them? Or, or you do you fold your well, feed sometimes? Uh, do I fold your feed?
1: I have to think back on this a second. I guess generally, no, then I don't anymore. Not you no used to. You used to. Used to with the miracle grow. With the miracle grow, you'd yeah. go top mm. and bottom. Occasionally, I would still do like half strength miracle grow or mm-hmm. some reduced strength. Um, but not much recently yeah um only if I were seeing um trees that were somehow failing or mm-hmm. or not failing so much as uh, that weren't weren't looking very strong, then I'd give them some some extra foliar feeding maybe, but um it hasn't occurred recently huh.
0: and I mean the thing about deciduous. I think like if you talk about them in the forest floor and their ecology and symbiosis with the environment my microbial activity tends to be such a paramount aspect of that environment for them but in a bonsai container where they're repotted so frequently because of their rapid high water mobility rapid production of tissue both foliar as well as root in order to keep up with that rapid transpiration of that Thin cuticle and expanded surface area of the foliar structure of the deciduous. You're really not building up the same microbial network and and those symbiotic relationships as you have to with conifers in the containerized right. environment, and and therefore you could see where miracle grow as a chemical feed would have less of an impact on that, whereas you're kind of constantly trying to build up this microbial relationship in a conifer's container in the container for a longer period of time, symbiotic relationship, more significant, organic fertilizer kind of being that route that gets you there. Uh, but but that's also interesting and in just in terms of the different capacities and potentials of those growth habits in the small containerized environment that is bonsai.
4: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Do you think that any of your career in vineyards and awareness of grapes has heavily impacted your your approach to bonsai or knowledge of deciduous trees? Because physiologically, you understand the horticulture of it very well.
1: Um, so, the I've been doing bonsai, bonsai a lot longer than I've been dealing with grapes. Mm-hmm. So, grapes is just kind of a, a recent acquisition. But uh, the reason I got interested in the grape bonsai is because because I thought that the kind of pruning that we were doing in the vineyard was so much similar to the kind of bonsai pruning that I would do all the time. Let it grow, cut it back to one node. Let it grow, cut it back to one node. Mm-hmm. And each time you cut it back, it would change direction. It would get it would get smaller. You'd create this nice little pyramid of a, a trunk. And I'd look at it and say, you know, if I could just cut it off here and root that, I'd have a pretty darn nice looking tree. And guess what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can do precisely that. That's, what, that's
0: how it ended up working out.
1: Because <laughs> you're dealing with callous tissue. So at the, at the crown of the grapevine, it's all callous tissue there basically because it's been cut back so many times that you saw that off, put it in a rooting medium, soil, whatever, and most of the time it'll sprout roots and start to regrow so I cut back everything basically to all the branches on this little triangle of of trunk. I cut them back to basically one single node on any branch, and just let everything resprout. Mm. So the so the first year it has to grow roots. It's somewhat slow in growing twigs, but it's still going to grow twigs as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, and you couldn't just do that in the midsection of a grapevine though, because you haven't no. created that callus tissue. Right. Exactly. So that's a very specific location where that could occur. Well, and
1: it's a vine as well, remember. So mm-hmm. so with a vine, so if the grapevine grows long and touches the soil, it'll probably root there, right? It's kind of the nature of vines yep. where they touch soil, they'll toss out adventitious roots. Sure. So the fact that uh, it's a vine just makes it, A lot more plausible than trying to deal with any other kind of tree
0: yeah but i mean i think you touch on a really strong point there just in terms of the formation of the callus tissue and what that means because outside of outside of really abnormal circumstances i mean a a a, a willow or a a tamarisk or an olive these species that historically can be flat cut kind of Anywhere mm-hmm. on in the growth of the tree, and and they'll they'll root. Uh, there are those species that carry some of that mysticism of being capable of being flat cut, but you could not depend on the result of that in terms of the high propensity or high likelihood that it'll root. But when you have a significant amount of scar tissue that is formed in specific areas of the tree, there probably is a lot more viable opportunity for root to occur because that scar tissue is yeah. the same cellular division right. or rapid accumulation of, of of you know high potential cells that could divide, and that's what you're looking for to create roots.
1: Yep, yeah. and and you can see that, um, and I've cut below the the section that was kind of built up through the callus tissue mm-hmm. to part of the trunk that. Was kind of outside of that or below it. You almost never get roots on that lower section. It's where the callus tissue was, because callus tissue, I think, is kind of undifferentiated tissue to some extent. Right. It hits the ground and says, oh, "I'm going to be a root." <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess I'll be a root. <laughs>
1: That's right. <laughs> I don't see any. No, don't see any light out there. It's, it feels kind of wet, and yeah. so <laughs> become a root.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Interesting.
1: So they they root surprisingly easily.
0: Boy, I'm just thinking back um, on so many, yeah, so many uh undefined you have to be really careful about knowledge and boneside because so much of it is undefined and and the 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 things I think what what we're learning is that there are a lot of wives' tales or urban legends out there about yes. boneside that probably occurred because the right set of circumstances came together to mm-hmm. allow that success. But then one 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 successful operation became hey this is this is how these trees behave, or this is possible yeah. and that's dangerous that's very, very dangerous
1: I think there are a lot of old wives' tales in bonsai that may not be true yeah. or that that someone decided they they reached a conclusion which um they reached a conclusion prematurely, let's right, say. Right. Or without sufficient information. They they were guessing at the conclusion when they may not have had all the facts involved, or didn't try other alternatives to see whether some other conclusion was just as valid. So
0: you could almost say they jumped to a conclusion. <laughs> 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 they jumped to a conclusion. They, I know. They I mean I'm to a conclusion. I, I just and, and and again, this is where when I think about the things that, uh, when I think about the things at Mirai that continue to really drive uh, me forward, in terms of try- encouraging me or inspiring me or feeding me information that at least helps my bonsai practice in a way that I really appreciate, I think about the the, the question and answer sessions I have with Marai Live members, where they're asking me questions and from angles and positions and the manner that it's asked or what it's asked about or the information that exists around what they're experiencing that I get sort of fed into the bank and trying to physiologically reason through that, that keeps that that continues to shed new light on the physiology of bonsai. Mm -hmm. But then I look at the podcast and getting to just sit down for the past 10 years, I mean, we've talked with, obviously, we spoke with you about deciduous trees. That was, how long ago was that lime that Dennis was here the first time?
2: What, a year and a half ago? Something like that. 18 months ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just kind of marinated on that a lot, of, a lot of, it opened up a lot of discussions. And I think people are so hungry to know and understand this thing. But I think they're hungry to know and understand it on a level where they know what they're doing, they can predict the the, the outcome, the response with. Yeah. And that's really what the conversation over the past 10 years with conifers has allowed us to do is, is, is you can predict the response and you can understand how you accomplish these things. And now kind of diving into the deciduous on a level where it's becoming more of a topic with more people weighing in because there's interest in it. Uh, those same kinds of predictable responses seem like they're going to become maybe more and more of an understood. And just, again, just the callous tissue and, and all of a sudden you can cut these grapes off and if you don't have it, they don't produce roots at that location. If they do, they will. This is, this for me in college, hearing about all these species that you could flat cut, I'm just like, oh, that, because, because I might not have had success with it where somebody else very easily did, How what was the difference? Maybe yeah. that was the difference. Maybe mm-hmm. that that singular piece was the difference and maybe that piece impacts the things you have to do with a trident maple to get an air layer to more effectively take maybe <laughs> the production of the callus tissue is the first step, and you know that the first go-around, you're probably not gonna get roots, right?
1: I mean no, like No, you'll get one, maybe two. Right. And it's gonna be terrible. It's
0: gonna be worse than yes. you could have imagined.
1: Yes. I it is true. Trident is one of the strongest, easiest growing species to use. But to to get a uh, to get, try to air layer, is to me near impossible. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's simplest just to cut it off, stick it in the ground, and and let it grow roots as a big cutting. I I mean I wonder
0: if if getting it to produce that callus with trying to air layer it and then take cutting it off and sticking it as a cutting is is. I've
1: I've is, done that, because I only got one or two roots coming out, and it almost always heals over. Yeah. So you know it if you if you do the uh, air layering or ground layering, and you cut a band of, uh, or you, you essentially girdle the trunk, right, uh, either with wire or cutting a band mm-hmm. of of the um, bark away, they're so strong growers that they, they'll heal over a one-inch band or inch-and-a-half band of removed bark, Within a season, and so throw out one or two meager roots. Yeah, right. <laughs> think, well, that was it's <laughs> not what I intended.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so you've come back and just cut it off once you develop that yeah. callus, and stuck it as a big cutting.
1: Yeah, and usually they root
0: fantastic. What do you use like with the grapes when you take those cuttings or the tridents? What would you be? What would your medium of choice be for something like that? A large rooted cutting
1: uh i use some of the progro mixes uh and it's i think 50% uh, uh pumice and 50% uh aged bark aged bark decomposed yeah, yeah.
0: Pine, yeah pine or dug fir or something like that for yeah. A bark yeah that makes sense
1: Hmm. but for for grapevines you can use pretty much anything uh-huh i've tried 80% pumice, and that worked fine. And I've tried smaller percentages, and that worked fine. <laughs> you, you just stick it in, stick it in dirt. Well, my vineyard was first created um, from grapevine cuttings way back when, where uh, someone took shoots off of you know somebody else's grapevine, stuck them in the ground, and they rooted. So it's like, well, if they can do that from just regular Cuttings I could do too. <laughs> sure,
4: yeah. <laughs> why not? Why, why, so why? couldn't you?
1: When I when I first started, I was taking cuttings that were two to three inches in diameter, and rooting them. Because I I think we talked about this maybe once. I'd seen it before at a place in Sonoma County called Le Petite Van, the small vines. And they would create grapevine size that were so big, uh, eight to ten inches tall, maybe. They were cute. They were never bigger than the size of my thumb or probably even less than the pinky size. Mm-hmm. Often just like pencil size. But they got them to root and I figured, well, if they could do that, I'll try something bigger. So I tried two or three inches, that worked. Went up to four or five inches diameter and that worked. And I've gotten some as big as seven inches in diameter. Oh, wow. And they root.
0: Interesting.
1: Again, it's all... It's where the callus tissue is on top, and sometimes they've spread out and have kind of a wide base, so I just kind of cut out the sec- the middle of the vine. Yeah. Or in yeah. some cases, the top of the vine, if they have shoots below it, then just let the other shoots take over.
0: Sure, sure. Do you ever use rooting hormone, or, or do you see a need to? I mean, even <clears throat> in your trident experiments, did you use rooting hormone?
1: Uh, if I'm doing air layering, I'll often use root, rooting hormone. And I think I probably have tried it on the tridents, Um, but I can't be 100% sure I've done that.
0: So, air layering on... on
1: Japanese maples or, in particular, Japanese maples, but also some of the prunus family.
0: And you find that the rooting hormone gives you superior results?
1: Yeah, although it might just be my belief rather than (laughs) the actual results. Yeah. It seems like it should help. Uh, It seems like it also does help, but... I haven't run the exact experiment to try, you know, half a dozen with and without to yeah. see whether they would work okay.
0: Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. <sighs> so many ways. So many one ways. One of the
1: things that I have not tried, although I've been meaning to, is something I think I've seen in a Japanese magazine one time where they would, you do an air layering and instead of taking it off the first fall, After it's built the roots, you go back in and cut the roots to shorten the roots to get a better flare, rather than all kind of cramped, curly, cramped up roots. And then they in put it in a uh, put more moss or whatever medium is around it, so that it can grow better ramification from those roots that they were. They were pushing out
0: while it's still on the fire yeah. hose of the parent trunk. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Because uh, I think they had pictures of that and showed them with with good results. The the downside of of uh, air layering is sometimes you get quirky roots, mm-hmm. just because. I mean, usually it's it's wrapped up in a ball of moss or yep. or even a pot that still doesn't give you the kind of root development that you would like. Yeah. And because there's nothing to really hold it down, once you put it in a pot, you can't really flatten out the roots at that time very easily. Right. And they're, they're usually fragile, so you don't really want to try to wire them. So um, maybe I'll experiment with that sometime. Wow, wow. I'll put that on the list of possible <sighs> experimentations.
0: I love that. I love that. All the different ways that you can play with the systems yeah. That's really interesting. I when I was at Mr. Kamura's, we we air layered a lot because he was always trying to or had the had the obligation to or was gonna be paid handsomely to create um Shohin deciduous material for uh medium sized mm-hmm. coniferous three point displays. And so I mean he would go to auction and he might buy a handful of deciduous trees that all we were going to do was air layer off the best part of, mm-hmm. and discard of the rest, uh, and so we we were constantly tampering with air layers. And um, he used to cut thin sheets of balsa wood, and he would cut out of the center the exact diameter of the shaved down trunk. And then he would cut a slit down one side of the balsa wood so that he could just flex it enough to get it around that central ah. trunk. Now, he didn't want space between that central trunk <laughs> because he didn't want the roots to emerge from the callus and grow right. down that space. But then he would flat? yeah, he would bring that, that sheet of balsa wood right up against the area that he had air layered, tie a wire below it to hold it there. And then we would build a container around it, and there would obviously have to be space between the edge of the balsa wood and the container for the roots to go across the top of the balsa wood sheet and straight down into the container. Mm -hmm. And then we would fill it with akadama. And in a single season for a little shohin zelkova, I mean, he could air layer it off, um, you know, starting in, in sort of the mid to late spring, and he would have it for the kokfu in December. Wow, uh, just in, and it would be a really <clears throat> nice buttress because the callus would naturally f- cause the base to buttress, <laughs> and then he had these lateral roots that uh, he was cultivating in a really fine akadama uh, chume size, really fine sized soil. And I mean, that was very common to be able to do that, and it was just like, oh, this is so interesting. Um, but playing with air layering here across a number of species, y- you start to recognize that there's a lot of ways to screw it up too.
1: Yeah, or there's a lot of ways to get uh, kind of irregularly shaped roots, mm-hmm. or roots that that cross over one another, yep. or or holes in roots. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I mean, even even we did uh, air layer on an American hornbeam out there, and the first go around had a few strong. You know, singular knobby <clears throat> roots, and yeah. so we went back in and rewounded it, and rewounded the callus that it accumulated, and it and it produced a really beautiful radial root system. But the use of the wire to get the callus to buttress and start to build some of those things, and yeah, it's uh, there's a whole unexplored aspect of of bonsai in my mind for deciduous material, anyways. That to me seems like the most underutilized technique.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good it's a good technique to to use and i've done that several times myself where mm-hmm. the top of the tree ended up being much more interesting than the bottom of the tree. Right. And I layered off the top of the tree and have a couple of very nice japanese maples as a result of it.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's very cool.
1: Do you mess
0: much with or or, or play with broadleafed evergreens? Um oaks or um camellias or any you know, olives, uh olives any of those? Not much. Not I much. have
1: I have a couple of camellias but Camellias are one of those uh, trees that have very thin bark, mm-hmm. and if you're not careful, it leaves huge wire scars. So, um, I've I've got a couple, I've experimented with them. I know, uh, man, just forgot his name from the club, uh, Alan Taft mm-hmm. has done a lot of nice work with camellias, and I've looked at a few of his very nice trees that wouldn't mind having in the backyard. Nice, <laughs> <too>. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, so Camillus, particularly the ones with really small flowers, just make, can make some really gorgeous trees, small yeah. flowers and small leaves. If you get the ones with larger leaves or really, really thick leaves, then they look kind of bulky or mm-hmm. heavy, but the few of the ones that he has there are just magnificent.
0: Yeah, I've always wanted to I've always wanted to up my knowledge of of camellia and and really really dive into camellia cuz in terms of urban yamadori camellia is a readily available piece yeah. of urban yamadori and there are some really stunning just smooth flawless trunks out there waiting to be made into something very special but that that process with camellia is largely undiscussed. It's another mm. I think broadleaf you go conifer craze over the past 10 years and now you see deciduous kind of on the rise and broadleafed evergreen is always this redheaded stepchild out there (laughs) there like
1: please pay attention to me (laughs) you know like yeah i've done some work with uh uh evergreen oaks so in the bay area the coast live oak Mm -hmm. in particular um but i thought that they weren't um hardy up here so i Sold or traded away all the coast live oaks that I had yeah. down in the Bay Area. It turns out that I probably could have kept them up here well enough yep. with some protection. But yep. anyway, uh, so I have done some work on those and have enjoyed those. They're a little bit maybe more difficult to grow than, than the deciduous oaks because they tend to, to throw out again, straight tubular branches maybe more so than the deciduous oaks do.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've had, I, I've I really enjoy. I, I love Quercus agrifolia. If I, I had to pick one broadleafed evergreen, that would be the one that I would work with. And I've really found via partial defoliation, I've actually pinched the central stem on those consistently over the course of years. And, uh, unfortunately, all the ones that you put in the time on when you're a bone type professional are typically the ones that sell. So they're not no yeah. longer here, but in a very short period of time, really, really high level of ramification on coast live yeah. oak that uh, was able to accumulate. And that was really fun to to play with that. Uh, but there's also, when I start to look at all of the Eliagnus, the native species yeah. of Eliagnus we have in North America or even the Asian Eliagnus species that have really beautiful characteristics and the capacity to be something special as a broadleaf. Uh, I've got a a spectacular pieris up in the landscape that Randy had during his landscaping days removed and didn't have the heart to discard of and he didn't have a place to put it. So he gave it to me and it has this spiraling trunk and it's a pieris, uh, which is very, very rare. Um, but it, it was always just like a little big, and I always kind of looked at it like, yeah, it's a pretty nice landscape plant, but but I don't know if we're going to do... But I think we're going to dig it up this year and we're going to start <laughs> the process because I want to know about Pieris as a yeah. broadleafed evergreen. It's, it's a, it is a it is a a calling to me to kind of manzanita, the
3: Ooh, nuances those, of
0: manzanita. Manzanitas are tougher. How? But um, So just, far,
1: Greg Brendan is the only person I know who has been able to transplant manzanita successfully. Mm-hmm but maybe there are others now who've figured it out.
0: I don't know. I don't know that there are. I don't think so. I don't don't think there's a lot of people that have been able Mm -hmm. to get it done, and it might be, because there's so many varieties of manzanita, there might be those same varietal nuances, and has anybody ever gone about it in a really scientific way with a really stellar technique and had all of the pieces come together?
1: Well, I think they just, they grow in an environment that's usually very arid where the, the roots run a long way. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I th- unless you can find a pocket one, you know, something growing in a pocket, it's hard to get enough roots, I think, to keep them alive. Because I think almost everybody who's grown bonsai, when they've seen manzanita, it's, it's like seeing a juniper in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Same reddish, brownish bark and same deadwood. And it's a magnificent tree until you realize that none of them survived the transplanting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but this is like Europe and rosemary used to be. Yeah. I mean, rosemary was almost impossible. And now the collecting success around rosemary is quite high yeah. when it's collected. I mean, it's a challenging species to work with, much like manzanita. Um, and and I do have uh, a, a few students that have, have been able to create some concepts around the different varieties of manzanita and how they might respond to to some partial defoliation or management techniques to get the ramification and whatnot. So now it's a matter of figuring that those pieces of the puzzle out. But even, I mean, sagebrush, I understand the skepticism around sagebrush as sort of a garbage plant that exists Mm -hmm. in just a copious quantity, but there are some really magnificent sagebrush across the Western United States. This is another species that people say, well, you can't really repot it or touch the roots, and it's short-lived in a container. That is not my experience with sagebrush at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have have had a few sagebrush that Randy had brought back a while ago, and um, and his whole commentary around sagebrush is, yeah, I, you know, th- it, it's it's not gonna, it's probably not gonna last long, you know. And and that's been a lot of people's experiences, but I know Joanne Rayton has had yeah. wonderful success with sage. We had one in a one-gallon container for like three years. We just repotted it and and took it from a one-gallon container into a little tiny shoheen container, heavy root reduction, and it's pushing growth vigorously. And um, some students from Las Vegas just brought us a sagebrush that they collected a couple years ago out there to play with. But, I I mean, I'm so curious about all of these things.
1: Yeah, I think if you have good aftercare – Um, so like maybe with bottom heat and other things like that, that could help stimulate roots, uh, then you increase the chances substantially. So part of it is just experimenting and then figuring out what those little combinations are that, that increase the chances of success. Yeah. You don't really know until you try it and experiment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mountain mahogany is another one that's out there as sort of a, a unicorn. I mean, this amazing broadleaf evergreen for, with deadwood, like a juniper, and twisting and contortion. And
1: for me, it was uh, a eucalyptus nicolii. Aha. Uh-huh. Pe- peppermint or either willow leaf eucalyptus or peppermint leaf eucalyptus. I tried that six different ways. Huh. I tried one gallon. I tried five gallon or larger pots. I tried sealing every cut I made on the roots and I don't know, several other, I've never got one to transplant successfully for me. Interesting. But it had all the hallmarks of a potentially beautiful bonsai, you know, with these thin, small thin leaves, uh-huh. but never successful, not once.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. it's uh, Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ground to be covered. Yeah. out there and i'm i'm excited that deciduous is taking a little bit more of a center stage right now it's,
1: it's exciting for me too yeah
0: yeah i mean you know, uh just having just having been dedicated to the game for so long it's got to feel good because it feels like and i think this is true even in japan i mean I, when we used to talk with mr used to talk with Mr. Kamura. when Mr. Kamara chose to explain things to us, he would say the reason he doesn't do deciduous is because um, it takes forever and and they don't sell for as high of a price as, as conifers. Yeah. But when you get to the truly high end or upper caliber, upper echelon of deciduous, I think a lot of those are as valuable as the conifers, particularly when you get to the Kokfu winning level of deciduous. Yeah. Uh, and as, You've put in so much time to have that time appreciated now it has got to feel good, I would imagine.
1: Oh, yeah, because it it feels like the trees are not developing much until I look at pictures of what they were like 10 <laughs> years ago or 20 right, years ago. Right. and Because I had the vision in my mind 10 or 20 years ago of what they would look like today. And to a large extent, for, for a lot of the trees, they've matched that vision that I had for them. Mm. And so it's like they'd always been there, but 10 years or 20 years ago, they didn't have nearly the twigs that that they have now. Right. Right. So they had the elemental structure, but I was filling in the blanks 10, 20 years ahead of time of what I would think that they would look like. But just going back, or, uh, looking at pictures five or ten years ago there's a lot of development that's occurred mm-hmm. and you just don't notice it because it's small increments each year right after five years or more then it starts to show
0: yeah 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 how rewarding how wonderful and uh I mean on an annual basis you do you still feel as passionate about the work that you're doing with them yes yeah yes more so same
1: um at least, at least the same, and some cases more so. I'm particularly since I've retired, uh, I get to spend more time looking at the trees and working on the trees, and um, have the desire to uh, improve them more. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a little side side note. I keep a spreadsheet of of my trees, and I rank them. So I've got the show ready trees and the near show ready trees and then others with uh, longer developments, a couple of different categories. And so my near show ready trees, there were some, and for me that means like within two, three, four years at most, it ought to be ready for a show, which means pretty full ramification, usually good uh, nabari or base to it, or good roots. And so some of that, Some of those trees had been on the list for five or ten years in that category. I was wondering, well, now that I'm taking a look at it, why have they not bumped up to the show quality category? And I think it was just because I was keeping them in pots that were not big enough to get the kind of growth that I was expecting.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: So they, they didn't... They weren't of the quality they could, that they could just grow slowly as show trees, but they were in a pot that that, of that size that they were only going to grow small amounts. There was not enough energy in the plant to to get that extra development that, that I was, in my mind, I'd envisioned and I expected from them. Mm-hmm. So recently I've um, not up-potted so much as put things in, larger wider pots still shallow because and i've used um one of the anderson flats the shallow anderson flat rather yeah, than right. the deeper anderson flat so that gives me much more it gives me a lot of root space but it's in a horizontal format rather than deep mm-hmm. so it's helping to build a Nabari. it and when I've put things in there after the first year, I can tell that the the color is better. In It's like I have a, an Arakawa maple. The color is so much darker in the leaves. There's much more strength in the, in the twigs that are coming out. Mm-hmm. And so just that kind of change has, I've seen uh, a lot of nice development in the trees. It, it wasn't it wasn't because I wasn't paying attention to them; it's because I was, I was, I wasn't starving them, but they were, they were just didn't have enough space to grow in. Yep. To to really improve.
0: And are you when you're planting them in the Anderson flat? Are you using your akadama lava yeah. mixture in that instance as well? Yep. And are you trying to get them to grow horizontally? Or are you planting them relatively low in the container?
1: Well, remember the containers only. Three inches thick at most.
0: Yeah, something like.
1: So the the, the deeper Anderson flat is, what, four or five inches yeah. deep? So these are two and a half to three inches deep. Right. So So you're just
0: treating it like a pot.
1: Yeah. I mean, it basically is the same size as a, what will be a large oval, then I'll snip around and it in the pot. Some point.
0: And are you growing that on a bench, or are you setting those on the ground? On the bench, okay.
1: mostly. Some are on the ground, in which case they'll sometimes root into the ground. Right. And so, does
0: that does that ruin the does that start to create two courses of growth that they get into the
1: ground? It has the potential. Yeah. So in some cases they'll throw up uh, or try to throw up a shoot that's ten feet tall. Uh, so you just have to pay attention to yep. that, but I don't have any of the any of the trees that are near show quality uh, on the ground.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes they'll, sense.
1: They'll they'll stay in the air so that uh, they don't get the the roots won't go into the ground.
0: They don't get too excited. Yeah,
1: the younger some younger ones I might put on the ground just to give them some extra strength and and let them kind of experiment to see what might. You know what turns they might take sure but the ones that are close generally not
0: huh. how many trees do you maintain because because the, the more lot. that we talk the more i'm like wow it sounds like dennis has a lot of trees i know
1: you haven't come by to visit
0: have you no but i've talked with a lot of people who have and they all say i how dare you <laughs>
3: And I want to, I want
0: to come, I want to come see him in Winter Silhouette, which means well, the, to- the the clock is ticking.
1: Now's the time. Yeah. Well, Ugh. that's right. If you weren't going away tomorrow, then.
0: I would, I would, I would love to. And I know, you know, there's uh, periodically you have uh, people over and whatnot and it's, it always falls on a weekend that I have classes. It's like, uh, well, like uh, getting to getting to hang with you. Roger Case has a, a Christmas tree burning, yeah. uh, you know, festivity uh, after the holiday is over, and everybody's trees have long since expired. And then the uh, auction up in Seattle. These are these are three mm. three moments in my life where I have never been able over the past <laughs> ten years to take advantage of them. That is all going to change. Uh-huh. It's all going to change, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Uh-huh how many trees how many trees
2: you got a spreadsheet I
1: thought you are going to lift me off the hook No, right I'm just, and, yeah. I
0: mean I don't need an exact number but uh, you, you, so
1: my spreadsheet is uh, five or six pages long mm-hmm. whatever maybe 40 per page 30, okay. 30 to 40 per page yeah a
0: couple hundred trees yeah and do you ever feel like you're caught up no Okay, so you're you're you're, 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 exist- <laughs> you're you're existing in the realm, but you obviously are able to give the show trees the attention yes. that they need.
1: Well, right. So they get priority. So each year, the show quality trees uh, gets whatever has to be done to them, and the near show quality trees will get most of what has to be done to them. Um, the other ones with longer development, it's You know, there'll be a lucky dozen or so of those that get some attention and some of the rest of them don't. Mm -hmm. So, the show quality, near show quality get transplanted pretty much every two years. The other ones might go three or four years. Yeah. So, it's because I don't have great expectations for them. Occasionally, some of them surprise me. I looked at uh, another Japanese maple forest that I'd put together a couple years ago and all of a sudden, I pulled it out of out of its storage the other day and and looked at it closely and said, "Wow, <laughs> that's getting to be awesome. <laughs> Whoa, look at you. <laughs> that's right. Look at you jumping off the list there.
0: <laughs> so elevating your status. <laughs>
1: that's funny. So you know you find surprises like that where something that had been going very slowly, all of a sudden, did the right moves and and looks so much better. Or, mm. you know, sometimes it's just from a different angle. You catch it at and say, oh, I didn't see that before, and that's way better than what I was thinking of. So occasionally you get that, and I've found a few of those this past winter that have that.
2: Hmm. Yeah,
0: thinking about the Anderson flat thing that you were talking about, uh, one of the questions that, that comes in periodically on Mariah Live is, is uh, there's sort of this discussion of uh, when a deciduous uh, periodically you have to plant a deciduous tree back in a wood box and and that that helps them re- recover strength or you know do you have to do that but it sounds to me like th- their the Anderson flat is is the wood box yeah. it's it's out of the container and into a freer oxygen exchange environment with the space yeah. to really reaccumulate health and strength and are you always dabbling like this are you
1: always trying new things oh yeah
0: yeah never stops?
1: doesn't stop. I'm still taking cuttings of a whole bunch of things. and Nice. Yeah, I probably took another 200 cuttings this year. Oh, of, geez. Of ume, Holy cow. Of ume and plum and tridents and other What do things. you do with them all? Well, some become forest <laughs> <laughs> or some become um, thread grafts. Uh-huh. Um, when I was in the Bay Area, I used to be able to collect seed from a China maple tree that, or they had several China maple trees growing um, near the collection in Oakland. And I don't have access to China maple seeds anymore. So any extra thread grafting and so forth I want to do has to come from things that I develop. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. And I just get a kick out of uh, flowering trees and smelling ume in springtime. Oh, yeah. So.
4: Yeah. I'm yeah,
1: always I, happy to try with those.
0: I respect that. Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, I did a few smart things early on in Mirai, not, Mar- not many, but, but, but a few. And one of them was, um, was planting my own mother stock for air layers for juniper grafting, mm-hmm. and I'm not a big proponent of grafting over native juniper. I, I like the native foliage, I like the diversity, I like the, I like the smell that it maintains of the mm-hmm. environment, and um, and I just like the 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 differences because the thing one of the lesser appealing things about Japanese bonsai for me was the 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 monoculture, if you will, or the the monotrend, which is there's a period in the seventies and eighties where cork bark pine was the rage and they planted yeah. fields of cork bark pine and then it fell out of vogue and then they bulldozed all of them. Well, kind of the trend with junipers is to graft over all of the native foyer masses of junipers in Japan and and the continually evolving trend is to graft it all over with the exact same thing. I mean, when I was in Japan in the early two thousands, Mr. Kimura had three or four different Crafting varieties, and he would use a little bit larger needle on larger trees, and he'd use Itoyigawa on smaller trees. Now it's just kind of everybody uses Itoyigawa on every juniper in Japan, mm. and it's become very much um, an uninteresting yeah. diversification. Mm-hmm. And they even went as far as putting Itoyigawa on all the rigida or the needle junipers. And it's like, for crying out right? loud, you know, it's like every juniper is going to be the same mm. at some point. Uh, and, and so, I, but anyways, I digress sometimes you do have to graft, and we've started cultivating, or we started I started when I began the landscaping here to integrate those mother stock and continue to expand as I find new things that I would like to have in an abundant quantity mm-hmm. um without having to go find it every year or to have the same genetic yeah. of it as I utilize it over the course of time. And that's that's a really, if I could give anybody a piece of advice, that's a really intelligent thing to do is to have find those mother stock pieces because they really do create a backbone and a foundation.
1: Yeah, I'd say one other piece of advice is plant seeds. Mm-hmm. Find a, a parent tree that that has interesting foliage or some interesting characteristic, foliage or bark or whatever, and get seeds from it and plant the seeds. You only may get a certain percentage of them coming true or true true enough close to what you want, but sometimes you get, you know, wild things coming up out of the seeds. Mm-hmm. I found one, uh, I planted some birch uh, seeds a couple years back and I got a variegated birch. Out oh, of it. <laughs> nice. cool <like>, baby. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's like one out of a thousand, but, one, it's still there.
0: You, I mean, you don't need a a, a thousand different yeah. birches. Yeah, but that variegated birch, that's interesting. That's
1: interesting. Yeah,
0: this was this was the Jerry Morris approach too. <laughs> I mean, Jerry Morris. I don't know if you ever knew Jerry Morris no. or know of Jerry Morris. Jerry Morris in Colorado is 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 the gentleman who found the environment that a lot of the uh, collected Colorado blue spruce have come out of the fin uh, mm-hmm. environment, which is just a really weird geological. There's an underwater, uh, underground water source. There's topsoil over the top of it. The spruce grow through the topsoil, and then the river rock that is facilitating the movement of water under that topsoil. Um, they grow into that water every winter. It's shallow enough that it freezes, shears mm-hmm. off all the roots, and it naturally stunts these Colorado spruce. Mm-hmm. Creates this wonderfully fantastic creeping, crawling uh, aesthetic to them, which is even, even more interesting because they're so different than the rock kind of confined spruce that you would um, see. But Jerry, really, his career was based off of finding witches brooms. And mm. if he couldn't propagate the witch's broom in terms of a cutting or some sort of graftable piece, then he would collect seeds from it. And obviously, a genetic mutation, like you were saying, doesn't necessarily create genetic offspring, yeah. uh, genetically mutated offspring. But Sometimes it does. And sometimes it'll further mutate and create something truly spectacular. And so going over to Jerry's place when I was in college and when I was um, in high school, uh, actually is when I first started going because he was good friends with Harold Sasaki, my original mentor. But um, you just see, I mean, greenhouses filled with thousands of seedlings of Doug fir and Rocky mountain juniper and um, you know, any number of, of front range deciduous uh, native species or pines. And it was, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. And now mm. the Jerry Morris um, botanical collection is one of the largest specialty conifer collections that any single individual mm-hmm. has ever amassed. And it's, it's fantastic, yeah but it was just the, the role of observation and seedlings and, and, watching what happened
1: yeah experiment and take notes and watch what happened
0: yeah yeah um when you grow a seedling just to go back down Mm -hmm. the rabbit hole when you grow a seedling and you're trying to create a root system for bonsai do you come back in and sever that taproot to get radial distribution of roots or how do you handle that transition what taproot um so deciduous seedlings won't form a taproot
1: not if you grow them in shallow anderson flats
0: so and, you're planting them very shallow from the very beginning. Yep. And as a result, how do they form the radial root distribution that creates a basal flare that you would ideally want? Why does it not become a strong root that meanders kind of and continues to elongate as a singular root?
1: Well, part of it is in an Anderson flat, the the bottom is uh, the equivalent of a quarter inch mesh. Mm-hmm. So you have quarter inch... Holes there, quarter-inch square holes. Um, I put landscape fabric over that, but the roots, if they really wanted to, could push through the landscape fabric and and they would get air pruned.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, it's kind of like the 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 uh, root maker pots. Yeah, same sure. idea where mm-hmm. they stick their nose out. It dries up, so and and branches behind it. So I use that same technique for growing my um, grapevine bonsai. So they're all in aquatic containers with the same idea that that they're... I use the aquatic containers, you know, out in the open, not mm-hmm. in the water, but uh, the roots push through the... the what's like a, essentially a f- mesh pot. The, the tips dry out and they branch behind there. Mm-hmm. So I expect that the same thing is happening with... Um, uh, with the seedlings as well. now, some cases, they may throw out a longer root, and the root may go all the way to the other side. But that's okay because I can always prune those back and and develop the ramification, too,
0: so in that instance, you would you would, if they did throw out some big, long, vigorous root, yeah. you would prune back to fine roots and start that process. yeah. But for the most part, you're facilitating that via the air pruning methodology, which I mean, Ultimately this kind of ties into the whole notion of growing trees and colanders as well. As just yeah, a, a same idea. A, it's exactly the same strategy and theory.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man, colander is just a different shape or slightly different shape yeah. for, for the same idea. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I wonder I mean, the colander approach came from Japan, and I wonder if they have Anderson... I'm guessing they don't have Anderson Flats in Japan. I mean, Anderson Flats are a Pacific Northwest product, right? Yeah, I think so. And they're still manufacturing them, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What a wonderful... Randy
2: had them do a special run for him.
0: What a wonderful... The deeper ones?
2: Yep. They still have the molds. Sometimes they stop the run, but they keep the mold, and if you order enough, they'll put the mold in for you. Interesting. Yeah, that's pretty fun.
0: I was curious about that because I know he had, I I thought he had said that they had stopped producing them, they, but they must have stopped producing the deeper ones and he asked for it again.
2: Yeah, but they, yeah, they did. And then they had the mold on file. Mm-hmm. They just never got rid of it. Those things are expensive molds, you know, might as yeah, well bet. use them. Yeah. But
0: What a brilliant uh, invention. I mean, that's really changed a lot of the nursery industry. Yeah. The Anderson flat. They
1: are wonderful. Now, if they could get a half size Anderson flat, that'd be the perfect size for the, Smaller trees. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? There we go. We got to make. So sometimes I plant two of them, (laughs) two trees, in an Anderson flat because it's really more room than I want for one particular tree. Yeah,
0: yeah. Randy will divide. Take a board and divide down the middle on the cro- yeah. on the corner to corner cross section, and it's it, it it creates a smaller Anderson flat for tiny trees. You know, it's like it works really I'm well a
2: di- on the diagonal. I guess oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's Randy's easiest way you can get it in there fast. Move, get done.
0: Yeah, I mean it's that. Oftentimes <laughs> it's not even tied in. He just sticks a board yeah. in there, and and uh, and man for collected trees to minimize the soil mass around that collected root system helps them so much in their recovery process mm-hmm. that that's really, I think that's been a critical aspect of, of him figuring out how to best manage those trees and specifically those trees at, at, as the conditions in the Pacific Northwest create nuances to their survivability. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, um, I mean, we're dealing with it and, and consistently trying to figure out how the collected tree is best acclimated to the bonsai container and then eventually transitioned out of its native soil with the wetness that we have here. It's, it, yeah. it is a, a process that has to be um, intentionally pursued because if you leave it in there for any period of time over the course of the long run, it, it seems to dramatically impact them.
1: Yeah. That's an issue that you have more with conifers and collected trees than I deal with, generally speaking, because I'm re whatever rebuilding the soil much more frequently and there's almost so there's essentially no well there is no field soil left on any of my deciduous trees yeah and there's almost there's nothing that grows down that i care about yep so that gets cleaned out very early on and everything growing down is treated as uh sacrifice roots essentially yep so they they're just there to maybe maybe absorb extra moisture but but there's not much space underneath the the root base mm-hmm. everything all the energy's going out sideways and that's the one that I want to encourage
0: do you do you um when you do your routine repots i mean it sounds like you're you're saying you don't really have to do super aggressive repots um, do you bare root your trees periodically from time to time to go back in and really remanicure the root system or when how do you handle your routine repots on your refined trees? How do you handle repots on trees that you're building?
1: Yeah. So when I first start, I'll typically wash all the soil off mm-hmm. of the of the tree. Um look to see what the roots are like and how much of the roots I can take off. So I have enough experience I could take off half the roots generally and not harm the tree um, depending upon if it has enough fibrous roots uh, up top. So that's the first part and then after that, usually there's no need to to wash all the soil away from the from the roots anymore so it's more just building on what's there. What I'll often do, is for several repottings after that again once every couple of years. So maybe for the first ten years, I'll I'll take when I repot the tree or unpot the tree, I'll take a root hook and comb out the the roots radially. Mm-hmm. So so they'll be arranged in a kind of three hundred sixty pattern, and so I'm combing the soil away from the roots, not all of it, but enough of it that that the roots are straightening out and I'm not having overlapping, crossing roots or really funky roots. Um, So that's what most of the work is for the first 10 years anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Once we get beyond 20 years, then the roots are really dense. So at that point, you sometimes have to go in and take little wedges out or... It's kind of like similar to what we did before with combing the roots out or using the kind of the radial pattern. But because the roots are so dense, you can't get that far in. Yeah. I mean, because it's because after a certain point, the roots have fused together. I mean, it, to me, that's, I think, what nabari is, essentially the roots fusing together. And so the longer that tree grows in a shallow pot, the more it's likely to fuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I won't do, I won't take a lot of the roots off most of the time. Uh, it's only if I'm seeing that, that the tree is a little bit weaker that I'll probably um, remove more of the soil to allow more new growth coming out.
4: Sure, yeah.
0: So you'll actually take out the, 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 the pie, the wedge, the wedge. From those really dense masses just to create space yes. and the opportunity for <clears throat> new roots to have, yes. have room to grow.
1: Yes. Huh. But again, that's maybe every three transplantings.
0: Yeah. So cumulative, every yeah. six or eight years or so, you'll yeah. have to go back in and, wow. Wow.
1: So but by, by then, though, sometimes, like with my Japanese maple, uh... The nabari itself is like ten inches across at the base. Yeah. So so even though it's in a larger pot, you also don't have all that much separated roots that you can comb (laughs) out anymore. Right. Because the Nabari goes almost to the edge of the pot. Right,
4: right. Right.
0: So it's I mean, will that just continue on and on and on and on? I mean, will you have to continue putting it in a slightly bigger pot periodically because the nabari continues to fuse?
1: I think the answer is yes to that. Wow. But again, it's it'll be slow, so it might be once every 8 to 10 years that I have to increase the pot another 2 inches or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, but I, it was a couple years ago that I got the pot uh, that it's in right now, and that I think is probably 3 or 4 inches wider than it was in the, in the previous pot. Mm-hmm. And it's, it could easily go another two inches wider or soon may have to. Yeah. Another four years or something like yeah.
4: that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's looking full. It's looking full. <laughs> it's looking <laughs> well, full.
1: And, well, to me, it looks right-sized now. Mm-hmm. Once it has foliage on it, it looks undersized. Yep. The pot looks undersized. Yep. But that's okay because it's still kind of the right size for this time of year when I'm showing it typically, or like to see it or- When you really like
0: want to, to it. appreciate it, yeah. 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 Do you, do other deciduous trees produce that kind of plated out nabari in the same nature or way that, that your maples do, or do you think maples are the predominant species to do that?
1: Uh, well, so maples are the predominant species, both Japanese maples and tridents. They probably function a little bit differently where the tridents just seem to, I don't know, fuse by themselves more easily. The maples, you have to work with them a little bit more. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did with the maples was, um, you know, they've been growing in shallow pots for a long time. But I would put heavy stones or or bricks on the top of the soil to not to— squeeze the soil, but to squeeze the space that the roots could grow outward. And so that would bring them closer to other roots and cause the fusing to occur faster. And so I think that's how I was able to build an abari on that Japanese maple so substantially and relatively quickly.
0: So you would place bricks on the <laughs> surface of the soil. <laughs>
1: to weigh it down.
0: You, do you still do this?
1: Uh, I haven't done for a long time, but I might for some of the younger maples coming up.
0: Uh-huh. In in So the whole surface would be covered with bricks?
1: Yeah, or there'd be four or five bricks or large stones there, you know, large flat stones to weigh it down.
0: And you've never done an experiment to see if you could get the same nabari development with a tree that was at the same stage of development next to one with a brick and one without a brick. I have not done that. But you noticed a very rapid accumulation of nabari as a result of the bricks.
1: I was very satisfied with the results.
0: And when you pick those bricks up, would it just be loaded with fine roots underneath the brick? Because I would think the brick would hold moisture and I would think it would keep it nice and dark and stable. Seems to me the brick might even be promoting, potentially if it's warm from heating up in the sun, Yeah, might even be adding some temperature that would encourage fine root growth, which might also help and assist with the rapidity of that development.
1: Yeah, I I use more rocks than stones. Okay. Uh, Excuse me, rocks than bricks, but I have used bricks on occasion. Uh, So I I can't say that I noticed um, whether... Whether it was wetter under there or more, roots grew. My concern initially was because when I watered, some of the area of the soil would be underneath the stones and not get sufficient moisture. But I don't think that turned out to be a problem. There's enough lateral movement of the water that, that the roots would still get wet underneath
0: yeah. And I'm assuming you probably never let your deciduous trees dry out to a degree no. where they would just become so parched or hydrophobic. No. Yeah.
1: That's a rare day when that happens.
0: It's taken a while. It's taken a while for us to get to the point where you were willing to really break out some of the craziness, but you're doing, you're doing some, you're doing some funky stuff.
1: <laughs> well, you're doing some funky stuff. <laughs> I I did funky stuff early on. I, I layered, so one of my other old Japanese maples, probably older than this one I have, so it might be 75 or 80 years old, uh, was originally growing as a a pear and, uh, or, you know, two trees in the same pot. One was growing in uh, lava rock. So it's it's what they would do sometime way back when in... uh, I don't know if it's like tufa stone or something. It's, it's a relatively soft lava rock that it was easy to to uh, create holes in. Mm-hmm. So they'd plant the tree in the hole uh, and let the, the roots grow into the soil. Well, it turns out that because that lava rock was easy to carve, it was also not very strong. It was not as strong as the trunk or or the primary root of a japanese maple tree so it broke the lava rock well so what do you do with a tree that that has its base up here and then the roots are five or six inches below that and in between is just a tube
0: yeah right yeah right (laughs) Right? the shape of the original (laughs) yeah uh, hole
1: so that was my first uh So, I looked at it, and you you couldn't glue the rock back together. It would never work. So, it's like, well, what do I do? So, I ground layered it, or air later ground layered it, and the tree survived. It actually survived better than the other tree, which was growing directly into the soil there. Hmm. Uh, So, that was my first big experimentation with with, uh, ground layering, and it was completely successful.
4: Nice. Nice.
1: So... I've been kind of pushing the envelope on occasion there.
4: Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and then in terms of that made, me, uh, that made me think of something just in terms of like uh, exposed root and some of those experiments to achieve really interesting movement through the exposed root. Have mm-hmm. you ever played with that? Because you do see yeah. ma- maple utilized in that fashion from time to time to get that really extravagant root system. In the in the more neagary type of form.
1: Yeah, I haven't done that much at all. A, a lot of the exposed roots, I don't care for so much. Mm-hmm. I've seen some very nice ones on satsukis. Right. Um, but most of the time, I don't deal with that. The one place where I do sometimes or have been looking for is uh, with a princess persimmon. So princess persimmon don't have elegant root systems a lot of time.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: They're really funky root systems where they have bumps in them. And, but sometimes they create almost a little mini tower of roots. So, so just when I was talking about the grapevines having this nice little triangle, well, below the surface of some princess persimmons, you will often find something similar to that, mm. just this huge triangle there. So the... The base, the root base, is actually like six or seven inches deep, forming a little mini volcano behind it or underneath it. And in some cases like that, you're also getting the wild twisty shapes and and uh, occasionally the exposed the equivalent of the exposed roots. So I still go through the the, um, the little nursery I have back in the backyard and look for those with some kind of weird knobby roots at the top because I suspect that they're also unusual quirky underneath.
0: Uh huh. How many how many Princess Persimmon are you propagating a year?
1: Uh, not very many now. Oh okay. I started out with I think eight (laughs) hundred. I bought most of a nursery of Princess Persimmon from down in Lodi. The Uh guy who the guy who uh Carl Young who did the
0: the miniature plant kingdom. This,
1: no, he did the Seju Elms.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 And he
1: brought in he brought in a lot of Princess Persimmon. So he brought in, I don't know, a thousand or something way back. Um so I when I was first starting with the Princess Persimmon, well, I found the ones that I like the most and propagated those. It turns out that they're very easy to grow from root cuttings. Mm not so easy from stem cuttings, but root cuttings you get eighty, ninety percent take. And so I've got pots and pots. Of uh, I've got quite a few of those. Yeah. And now they'll become forests. Huh. Cause they're all genetically the same in a particular pot. 'Cause cause I would take in some cases twenty or thirty root cuttings from a two-gallon can, two gallon two gallon nursery can. And now 15 years later, they are reasonably sized and some are developing quite nicely. So one of the projects for this spring is to increase the number of forests that I have.
2: Cool.
0: Have you ever tried the technique where you take like a tile and you drill holes in it and then you would put Japanese maples through it, allow them to thicken? And the idea is that once that hole in that tile constricts it, yeah. You kind of organize it like a clump. They swell together and then they'll they'll kind of self-layer. Have you ever tried that?
1: Um, maybe once or twice.
0: Did it work for you? Yes. It did? Yes. I've always wanted to try that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the plants will fuse very easily, uh, particularly with trident maples, but also Japanese maples too, if you're giving them enough horizontal root space to run. So... I've seen the technique, I've tried it a couple of times, but I can usually get the results I want without that. Uh And a lot of times, the trees that you're using to do that aren't very interesting trees. Right. So, if you choose trees well, and they have nice movement and small nodes, and they're going to be something special, then yes, I would try that sometimes, but otherwise... It's like the quality of the tree doesn't match the quality of the nabari.
0: Well, but I'm saying like you have a single tile that you drill like five or six yeah. holes in, right? You put these seedlings through it and then they swell and they actually fuse together as a multi-trunk clump. Yeah. And and I guess when I think about trying to get an effective clump maple uh, in other ways... I. Never really could figure out how you would go about getting a really beautiful, especially when you think about kind of the turtleback form that you see yeah. a lot of times where you have more space between the pieces that have fused together. This, to me, when I start looking at the ability to create that, is either a graft where they're plugging something into this mutant like expanded (laughs) nabari and it and that's like the solution to making it look not grotesque that's
1: that's right because sometimes it is grotesque Mm -hmm. there's that very famous uh trinit maple map of the world Map of the world uh, yeah yeah. that is ugly oh well yeah it is ugly it's they could probably have made it better but it's this huge nabari with a small trunk tiny trunk right in the center of it yeah so it's, I mean, I don't know what the proportions are, but I don't know how big it is. But it, what it's, at least ten it, inches or no, no, more it's than, much bigger than that. So yeah, so sixteen inches or so, and it's got a trunk of inch and a half, two inches at most. Yeah,
0: yeah, maybe maybe a, maybe a little bit bigger, but not much.
1: With a spread that's much less than the. Much nabari. less than the nabari, yeah. yeah. The canopy is <clears throat> less than the nabari. So, so that's where the nabari doesn't make sense, right? The canopy has to be wider than the Nabari to have it make any kind of sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna build the Nabari like that then you have to also build a superior tree up on top of it yeah. to to for one to be worth the other one.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah, I agree.
1: But I've found that um I can get trident maples to um to fuse very easily just by planting them close together. Again, it's the same thing. If you're, if you're encouraging the <clears throat> horizontal root spread, then you're encouraging those surface roots and you're, you're naturally increasing the diameter at the base.
0: I see what you're saying. They touch,
1: they fuse.
0: I see what you're saying. So instead of using this <clears throat> tile with holes in it and girdling them and getting the callus to fuse, you just plant them next to each other in an Anderson flat where the roots are growing laterally and they're naturally going to grow together and start to conform to each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. So you
1: might, you might get it to fuse faster, um, using the, the, whatever the ceramic towel with the holes in it. Sure. But
0: I don't know, but you might not you might not yeah. not necessarily.
1: Well, and and you're also limited to what you can thread through those holes. So you can't start with anything with ramification. You mm-hmm. have to start with a stick. Yep. So if you choose the sticks well that you're going to put in there, then yeah, in maybe 4 or 5 years they would fuse together. I'm not quite sure how fast they go, but Well,
0: but, and mm-hmm. when you think down the when you think down the line and when you think about all the deciduous trees that you've seen <clears throat> whose colors are changing at different times inside of a singular clump or whose uh, leaves have different characteristics or something like that. And you start to think about the way that maples do. I think when we've looked at Japanese deciduous trees, we've assumed the the purest intent as if this clump magically (laughs) happened somehow and haven't necessarily conceptualized the fact that these trees have been made for the duration of trees being made as bonsai in Japan, they were made that way, yeah. and now you start to see that genetic difference of say are five seedlings, even from the same parent stock. Well, those five seedlings aren't necessarily, and probably most likely, are not going to have the same characteristics of yeah. leaf size or fall color or timing for fall color and all of those things. And yeah, I mean this is this is the natural wonder of Pando, the the massive aspen grove, is that it changes color all at once. Yeah. Whereas that's not normal when you have a diversity of genetics that are engaging in a singular piece, right?
1: Yep. Yeah, that's true. And it's particularly true for other things that have wilder backgrounds, like uh I I grew a lot of crab apple seedlings. Well, crabapples have such genetic have such a huge history in their genetic backgrounds that that you can't you, that the probability of something coming out like their parent is very small. Mm -hmm. And so from the same parent plant, I've got um, a bunch of crabapple seedlings that are green and right next to them that have red leaves. Mm. Same parent, but who knows what the background was.
0: So maybe the, and these are crabapples that are domesticated over the course of time propagated for desirable characteristics in an ornamental capacity
1: small small yellow fruit in this case Uh a half inch round yellow fruit the whole flat of them was exactly from the same tree and up popped red leaf ones up popped green leaf ones right next to each other maybe even from the same from the same fruit i don't know (laughs) Well, because they'll get multiple seeds, so and who knows how they got pollinated. I don't know if that's true, but they're very close together. A lot of them seem like they came from the same clump, possibly the same fruit.
0: This is going to sound like a stupid question, but do you just bury the fruit in the soil?
1: Uh, For crab apples, yes. Some other things like the persimmons, I'll often remove the pulp. But this past year, I just buried the the whole seed, pulp and all.
0: Are there any deciduous trees that you grow from seedling where they have scarification requirements? Because a lot of times fruiting species have to go through the stomach acid of a animal's gut or intestine or something to, to meet the requirements for it to germinate. Are there any that you know specifically have those kinds of nuances?
1: Mm, no. No? Well, what I'm doing mostly is I'm planting the seeds when they're still fresh. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, Japanese maples, um, I won't let the seed dry out. So when when the the seed is set in August or September, before the seed the seeds dry on the tree before they fall off, um, I'll take the seed and plant them while they're still you know somewhat green. I'll do the same thing with crabapple. For the persimmons, when I planted the seed. Um, I planted them from fruit where the seed was still wet, mm-hmm. basically
0: so is the fruit has the fruit turned color yet or are you yeah. taking green fruit? No no, not green fruit okay
1: so so the fruit is ripe, but it's uh, not
0: it's not shrivelling up and and drying yeah, out yet it's not drying out, gotcha, so
1: if you dry it out then then you probably do have to to give it a cold treatment or um Brush it with sandpaper or something sure. like that to to help it along. Or in a lot of cases, you can just soak it for several days, mm-hmm. and that loosens it up enough to to um, make it easier for the the seeds to sprout. Wow,
0: that's interesting. And where did you learn that? Where did you learn to 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 start? Because just
1: experimenting.
0: Okay, because uh-huh. I mean, in a natural oh. environment, obviously, a seed is not going to get from the tree to the ground unless it's dried out. So then yeah. to, to understand that there's viability and in its, in it's sexually mature enough at that point to actually produce the organs of the seedling, to, that, that's that's really interesting to me.
1: Well, you know, if you look at the particularly the Japanese maple seedlings, they have the wings on them, right? Yeah. So the perfect time to take it is when the wings are drying, but the kernel of the seed is still fleshy or green. Yeah that's the perfect time to take it for and plant the seed.
0: Huh. Now, did, when you were collecting the seedlings from the trident maple in Oakland, were you applying this principle then, or is this something you've learned since then because you were only able to collect what fell?
1: From the trident? Yeah. No, I could reach up oh, high you enough could. To, okay. to get it. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I believe I didn't wait until they got completely dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they hadn't fallen down to the ground uh I would pluck them from the tree. So there would be at least some that were still on the kind of greenish side or the what I call the they were ripe but they they weren't dried out yet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm a big fan of of planting seeds. But also the the other advantage of planting seeds is you like if you planted them in the shallow Anderson flat, you just f- essentially fill the whole flat with seeds. Mm-hmm. Whatever pops up, pops up. But chances are you'll completely fill the, the flat with seedlings as a result of that. So that's the perfect way to grow a forest because the, the trees are very close together and they will fuse within a few years. If you try to assemble um, seedlings into a forest and you're not Kato then you can't get them close enough. Yep. I don't know how he managed to do that. But so what I do is I plant a flat of them and then pretend that it's a jigsaw puzzle. And so I'd cut out a section here that has you know, a grouping that, that would look good somewhere in a forest. And so I'd get a half a dozen groupings or so, and then assemble the pieces. Huh. So the larger, you know, the larger, some trees are gonna be stronger, taller than others, bigger, thicker. So you take those and those become your primary, you take them in clumps, so the, that clump would become your primary clump and you'd have several other secondary clumps and then smaller, shorter tree clumps in the background and it's been quite successful
0: in your mixing i'm assuming you're probably mixing generationally too trees that you grew in that fashion 3 years ago yeah. with or 4 well, years ago with or or are you keeping them all the same age and just taking the genetic deviations of of do, dominant versus subordinate
1: yeah usually it's it's the latter the genetic deviation in dominant versus subordinate so typically i will not Mix um, plants across flats because just because the leaf variation might be significantly mm-hmm. different depending upon the parent tree. So if the, all all the seeds came from the same parent and I I spread them across three flats, then it won't matter. But in some cases, like for Japanese maples, if I'm getting uh, seeds from seryu as the as the parent, then and i'm only getting 5% coming true to seriu there's that other 90 95% half of them are going to be regular green japanese maples and half of them are going to be somewhere in between seryu as a parent and a in a simple green japanese maple so gotcha. so using those seedlings will get you something that could be weird
0: yeah and yeah and so you're having mm-hmm. to use seedlings from trees that are having a relatively high transfer of genetics to have maintained characteristics that are similar enough that it works in a singular composition like a forest or something. I didn't realize, I didn't realize you went this deep, Dennis. (laughs) This is hardcore, man. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it just thinking about the logistics of all this. (laughs) And I mean, you know, what's funny about uh, anybody who gets in, really specific to these different areas and, and deciduous is kind of your realm and, and, and the way that you're playing with it is, I mean, it's, it's probably quite easy for you to look at what you're doing and understand it very quickly. Yeah, uh, it would be over, I I would come over and see probably a copious quantity of flats and just think, Holy sp- I mean, probably be overwhelming for me, you know, like tough to, to, to oh, comprehend. I've like- seen
1: your backyard, it wouldn't be that overwhelming. Come on,
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd but, adapt quickly, <laughs> but but I'm but I'm but I am I am definitely sort of singular, specific, peace oriented person. I would uh-huh. have a hard time with that kind of like I used to go to Jerry's place and see all of his seedlings, and it just it, it almost stresses me out. Mm. There's just so much, and each one's got a little note in it and stuff, and I'm not built that way. Yeah. Uh, but but definitely what you're describing, I'm not built that way, but it's fascinating to me to think of all of the opportunities that you're creating for yourself to make wonderful, deciduous material by the methodologies that you've accumulated, and the fact that you're willing to share them with everybody. Mm-hmm. Because if anybody's listening to this, and light bulbs are not just like, <laughs> bing,
1: bing, bing. bing. bing.
0: I mean, I'm sitting here like, (laughs) so many ideas, so many ideas.
1: Remember, again, this is also just fun. Yeah, right. Planting seeds and seeing something come up from seeds is just a wonderful gift. You know, the just magic, just that simple thing of a seed growing and filling a flat. Full of these seedlings, you know, it's just magical. It's magic.
3: Yeah, and, it's totally magic.
1: And, you know, treating it like the jigsaw puzzle where you, where you take certain sections out and rearrange them, that's fun too, you know? So
0: I think, but I just think the deciduous tree producing a new set of photosynthetic solar panels every single year is yeah. also very, very magical. It's, it's like, uh, it's great to see a conifer grow again it's not adding something it didn't have. I mean, it's adding something it didn't have in terms of it's new, but it's not adding something it didn't have for 30% of the year. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's like, it's just continuing with its process. For deciduous, it's like, there's an end, there's time off, there's a beginning, there's an intermediate phase, and each one of those offers something different in terms of color, texture, uh, aesthetic, capacity to enjoy on whatever level you want to choose to do so and i think that's really where it started to fascinate me more and more as i've as, as i've become more distant from some of the bias maybe that was created in japan in terms of having studied with mr kimura who fascinatingly enough always had deciduous trees in his garden Mm -hmm. and towards the end of my apprenticeship started having a lot more deciduous trees. I don't know if that trend has continued or not, but there was a, a strong number of very impressive deciduous trees by the time I had finished my apprenticeship. Um, but they weren't trees that he created. They were trees that that found their way there and um, nevertheless was enjoyable to see. Yeah, And, you know, Mirai becoming more of a diversified facility, I started out thinking I was going to grow a lot of deciduous trees, and it only took a few really unfortunate uh, encounters with deer in the <laughs> middle of the night and just mm. seeing so much work destroyed that I recognized. <clears throat> and that's kind of as this new greenhouse is built, the old one comes down and that'll, the, the, the fence is already started around oh, okay. it. That'll just continue to create a deciduous facility so that the fruits of the labor isn't so easily lost you in know, a single singular night.
1: I've never had any problem with deer going after my bonsai.
0: They're not fenced in?
1: No. What? Well, I mean, there is a fence around, but deer get in inside the fence sometimes, less so now than before. But they have other things to eat. They they have the vegetable garden that they could chew on the lettuces uh-huh. uh, or other plants in the vegetable garden, which is 20 feet away from the bonsai. So they're close, but I guess before they get to the bonsai, they see lettuce
2: and say, hmm, or cherries or, or,
1: or tomatoes they or something.
2: Dude, is bored out here. They go to town. That like, yeah. is nuts. And, and when
1: they... Um, grapes are ripened, then they really like the grapes because the grapes are 20%, 25% sugar. Well, let's say 20%. Uh, so it's like candy for them. But again, that's much more interesting than the just the plain old leaves on the deciduous trees.
0: See um, <clears throat> where I'm at here? If I have one deciduous tree in the center of the garden, tr- hidden from sight... They will find it. They will find it like a heat-seeking missile, and they will annihilate it. Yeah, they do. And it just boggles my <laughs> mind. It, I'm just like, how? Why? To the degree where uh, Peter Warren was here two years ago in the spring, and the Pacific Bones Eye Museum had, um, had a Peter Adams, Japanese maple that Peter Warren, uh, you know, we kind of worked out to try and get some more Japanese maple information because it's definitely not my specialty. uh, Although I am really intrigued to learn about it, Uh, and we had that tree outside during the day while we are here. The deer typically, although not all the time, sometimes in the middle of the day they'll be in the middle of the garden. (laughs) But uh, but we had it right next to the workshop where traffic was high, and then we pulled it in every single night for two and a half months. Uh-huh. Because I just couldn't imagine yeah. a deer <clears throat> eating this tree and destroying a really important piece of history. And obviously, Peter Adams is no longer with us, so you you have um, you know sort of a, a lot of history forming yeah. there. But uh, yeah, I can't wait till the fence is built and then I don't have to worry <laughs> about it. And I honestly can't believe that I can't believe that you roll the dice like that. I mean, that's crazy.
1: Well, they've never. They've never touched any of them, uh, so I don't know what it is. I'm so happy for you.
0: <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Uh, uh,
1: no I'm, I'm worried, though.
0: <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you. If you'd never thought about it, it would have never probably never been an probably. issue.
1: No, but I, I do see the you know deer tracks sometimes walking through the raised vegetable beds. Uh-huh. But they, I've never seen any damage on the bonsai.
0: I'll be darned. Dennis, it's been three hours, man. Whoa! Right? <laughs> that just happened.
1: It's been fun.
0: I could I could sit here and chew your ear all night long. I'm, I could I'm, probably do the same too. It, it's it's been uh, the amount of inspiration and ideas that have come from what you've shared. It's just phenomenal, and I I can't thank you enough for coming back and seeing us.
1: Can I add one more comment? Please do. So before we were talking about like. The, particularly the techniques for for Japanese maples and Mm -hmm. how you want to catch that bud before it elongates, there's a second reason to do that. And that is, um, so you get two buds popping from each point where you've stopped the growth before, right? Uh, If you let both of those extend too long, they'll be useless. So you cut both of those back, now, at the base of those, you'll get two on each side. So you're now up to four buds from one spot. Right. So you can't have four buds in one spot. You'll end up having to cut away half that. Or if all four pop out again and really get long, then you've got this big knot forming there that you have to cut away completely. Yep. So, so you can't get away with, just letting it grow and cutting it back because you're creating a different problem for yourself. Yeah. And it's a problem that's actually worse that you end up having to cut away. You can't you usually- create can't, knuckles. Re, yeah, you can't really remedy that easily without cutting it away.
0: So the way that you avoid that is by pinching that central yep, stem.
1: Catch it at the right time. So not only does it improve the quality, it just prevents problems. Wow.
0: Nobody- Nobody has ever nobody have has ever put it as succinctly and simply as you've broken it down tonight. And it's not, as with anything when you observe the way plants grow, it's not rocket science, but yeah. it's also not so intuitive that you just look at it and understand why all of these techniques are executed and how they serve the tree. And I would honestly say there probably aren't a lot of people that will ever think that far or break it down that much. Uh, and that is where you sharing that with us and having somebody like yourself that has had success with it and has broken it down to understand all those ways expedites the process for everybody else that is wanting to up their level of deciduous cultivation. So it's pretty freaking cool, man.
1: (laughs) Well, but the the, the flip side of that is I've probably also... Already made these mistakes well, myself. So, exactly so right. I mean, somebody else might as well learn from from the screw ups that I've done in the past. Yeah, so that they don't have to recreate.
0: It's super. Um, it's super generous. I think the thing that is helping Boneside in the United States grow in the way that it's growing right now is the willingness to share information. Because it hasn't always been like this. It just mm. it just simply hasn't always been like this. And I, I mean, it sounds like you had some really healthy. Um, relationships with Dennis Makashima and Dave yeah. DeGroot, and um, there was one other person that you, stayed, Kathy, Kathy Shainer, yeah, Masumi Mizumi. Masumi Mizumi. Uh, but I mean, um, there are, I, I think, a lot of in the in the beginning of bonsai in North America, there was a very tribal nature to and commitment to a singular individual, and they yeah. could sort of staked their turf and had their territory, and that was what it was. Um, but it seems like that's changing probably technology, exchange of information in general. And also I just think the mentality in the Pacific Northwest specifically feels like a very um, open community to exchange of information. And that's, that's really cool.
1: Well, there's part of the, the difference or distinction, I think, is that in the clubs that I belong to in the Bay Area, there was no sensei in those clubs. Mm-hmm. So you were not wedded to one person's way of doing it. Or the right way, according to one person, uh, we took advantage of everybody who came through the area, uh, you know people from England, people from Southern California, people from wherever they were coming from. and so we'd learn whatever they could teach mm-hmm. wouldn't always be the same as somebody else who who was there, you know making suggestions before. so you'd learn um, different things from different people and you weren't as wedded to, to one particular way of doing things. Maybe you were just, because no one person had the answers or all the answers, you got to learn from a variety of people and you kind of filter through that, what you think might be the best answer or which ones corresponded most to your own experience. Yeah. So I think part of that, and with the Bonsai uh, Society of Portland it's the same kind of thing there is no one sensei mm-hmm. to that so you learn from a lot of people and there's a lot of good instructors in the area now too
0: a lot of people that have been doing it for a long time at a really high yeah. level Who, and there's a lot of instructors that have come through here that have left their sort of marks and pieces of knowledge that people have taken and grown on And yeah I mean Ann Spencer and, and you know, her deciduous work and um, yeah. Alan Taft and everything he's done. You got Bob Laws and that whole crew, and you know, it's, it's it's really it's a really rich place. I had no, I moved here just to be closer to Randy Knight. That was the only, <laughs> that was the only reason I, that I was really it. You know,
1: you didn't know I was do, out here doing. Great I, didn't you stuff here. I didn't know you were here. I didn't know you were
0: here. I didn't, I didn't know anything. And Michael Hagadorn was talking about how cool it was here on his blog after he had come back because he came back from Japan before I did and so then I reached out to him and said, If it's that awesome, would you mind, you know, another professional being there and he was he was open to it. So it it just sort of serendipitously fell together yeah. and and the you know, Troy Troy Cardoza, I mean my right hand man, this is he and I were in a Marco Inverni'si workshop in two thousand and two at El Dorado Bonsai, and so we're in this workshop together. And he finds out I'm I'm sort of focused on landscape design inside of horticulture, and wants me to design his landscape. I I as a typical flaky college kid, I never followed up with him. <laughs> but he had kind of kept kept track of me being in Japan with Mr. Kimura and stuff, and uh, and then he's here all of a sudden, and he's. I mean yeah. Troy was in my first juniper class he's helped me build the garden he you know used to come out on the weekends and then all of a sudden we needed more help and he was tired of doing what he was doing and so that came to fruition but you being in California and there's a lot of i would say that high level knowledge that started there and has moved mm-hmm. progressively north it's 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 a pretty special place right now for bonsai it is yeah yeah, yeah. and it only gets it only gets richer uh, having Andrew here and talking with Andrew and wishing him the best as he establishes himself. And I know Michael's having a major impact with the students that he's teaching that are pursuing it professionally. It's, it's um, yeah, you kind of have these marked eras of really, really cool stuff. And Southern California and the John Naka era and Northern California yeah. and Kathy Shaner Boone era. And now you are seeing the Pacific <clears throat> Northwest and everything that's happening here. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pretty, pretty awesome. And you've gotten to be a part of a lot of it
1: too. I have, yeah.
0: That's cool. That's cool. Oh man, thank you so much, Dennis. Appreciate You're you welcome. making the time for us. It's uh it's it truly is a pleasure and uh you know, I'm sure in a in another twelve months or so we're gonna need to do this again.
1: <laughs> My pleasure as well.
0: Oh, uh, very good. All right, well enjoy the repotting season. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. It'll be busy. <laughs>